Do you have a strong view about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, given all the things you just said? I think that it is healthy to have competition in currency. I think that um, we're looking at a very interesting future competition. For me, it's, it's less interesting to talk about central bank digital currencies. I'm interested in the people who are more oriented toward the decentralization of monetary and financial power, who really want to return money to its basic function of being a reliable unit of account, a dependable store of value. I'm not suggesting that the cryptocurrencies have attained that because for the most part, when you want to buy something with them, you, you still have to translate them back into the local currency. And so their value seems to move. But I do appreciate the idea that you want a currency that means the same thing on both sides of a, of a supply and demand transaction between the producer and the consumer. And that is where price signals do their magic if they are accurate and they provide clear signals to all parties involved in the transaction. And so it's, it's very interesting to see how this will shape up between sovereign created currencies and privately created currencies. And you'll get back into the old arguments. It's useful to look at monetary history between Robert Mundell and Milton Friedman and looking at Frederick Hayek, who predicted decades ago that you would have private currencies that would compete and provide a better product than sovereign provided currencies. What is up, freaks? Happy Bitcoin Tuesday. It's your boy, Matt O'Dell, here for another Citadel Dispatch. This is episode 20. Pretty fucking crazy that we're already 20 dispatches down. Citadel Dispatch is the interactive live show about Bitcoin distributed systems, privacy, and open source software. That intro was Trump's Fed nominee, Judy Shelton, who sounded like a Bitcoiner to me. Uh, that was kind of crazy to hear her talk about it like that on CNBC. Free nations should be prioritizing open monetary competition. Shout out to the freaks supporting the show. It would be nothing without you guys. Uh, I want to keep this ad free forever. No sponsors, community funded. Uh, this is how we do it. Um, so thank you. Uh, and shout out to the ride or die who are here for another live show. Um, without you, this would be nothing. Uh, so, uh, our platforms now are Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube as usual, but also we are now streaming live to Bitcoin TV, uh, which is pretty fucking cool, which Wiz is hosting himself. Uh, if you do watch it through Bitcoin TV, you cannot use, uh, the live chat to, to be a part of this. Um, but it is what it is. We are working on it. We are iterating and it's fucking dope. Um, and then last but not least, I just wanted to shout out to everyone that comes in through 
um, both of our audio streams, but especially uh, those in the Sphinx Tribe and Breeze and other podcasting 2.0 apps. Uh, it's pretty cool that we can stream value uh, directly to content creators. And being a part of that equation with you guys is really special. It's, it's really cool seeing the sad stream in. Um, with all that said, I mean, I'm really excited about this show. Um, as I said, it is the 20th Dispatch and it seems really fitting um, that we have Adam back here, a legend in the space and co-founder of Blockstream. Um, how's it going, Adam? Pretty good. Always lots to talk about in the uh, Bitcoin tech space. And we have Wiz joining us again. Um, project, you know, one of the project leads at BISC and mempool.space um, and also happens to be a Liquid Federation member. So today's topics of Liquid, BISC and Bitcoin privacy are going to be particularly suited to him. What's up, Wiz? Welcome back. It's always a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Ah, <clears throat> uh, happy Bitcoin Tuesday, guys. It's been a long week. It's I'm excited to be here. It's uh, Wednesday here, but <laughs> <laughs> good morning, Wiz. I appreciate you waking up at uh, four in the morning for us. It's it's cool, Matt. Anytime, only for you and Adam, though. Nobody else. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just saying I'll be more likely to be going to bed at 4 a.m. than getting up at 4 a.m. So like a true pain. cypherpunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so guys, I mean, I, I figured the best place to start is Liquid. I mean, uh, I don't think there's enough open discussion about the Liquid network. I think it's an interesting tool available to Bitcoiners. Um, I think one of the things that people tend to... Um, I think they tend to miss with these types of discussions is that we have many tools available to us. They all have different trade-offs um, and they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You can use many tools or you can use none of the tools. You get to choose what you want. That's what's cool about Bitcoin to me. Um, so with all that said, Adam, do you want to give uh, our audience you know, a quick explanation of, of why they should care that the Liquid Network exists? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a different layer too, and it was born actually, I guess, a year before I set about you know trying to form Blockstream. I was, you know, I got interested in Bitcoin and went a rabbit hole like everybody. And my background was electronic cash, privacy, enhancing technologies, and kind of applied crypto, and so. I thought one area that Bitcoin could be improved was privacy and fungibility. So I um, spent like a few months trying to figure out the most efficient, space efficient way to do confidential transactions. Well, what, it wasn't called that at that time, but what became known as confidential transactions. So it's a way to encrypt the amounts in Bitcoin transactions. So you don't really know how much money I'm transacting. Kind of private math. I think we might have lost Adam there. Wiz, can you hear me? You're just fine, Matt. <clears throat> okay, so um, while we have, you know, we're doing this live while we have Adam. Uh, 
uh, just reset real quick. Um, we'll proceed to Wiz. Wiz, um, you are a Liquid Federation member. Uh, it's kind of odd if you look at the Liquid Federation members. There's a lot of exchanges and large companies, and then there's just Wiz there. Um, do you want to tell the freaks, you know, how that happened, why that happened, and what that means to you? Yeah, that's probably a good place to start. Um, I, I think it all kind of started with the the so-called block size debate, right? At some point, there was this realization that uh, Bitcoin fees would go up and kind of pump forever. Um, and so if you're going to have a small base layer blockchain, then you need a number of uh, layer two blockchains or side chains or off-chain solutions like Lightning, Liquid, etc., and so I was very interested in the, uh, the Elements Core sidechain project and the technology that Blockstream had developed. They um, they were they published like a really cool, um, actually several white papers on the Blockstream website about sidechains and about um, the Liquid one more recently. And uh, like Adam was saying about the confidential uh, transactions um, and you know other base layer privacy features they have, which I thought were really cool. Hey, Adam. Uh, I think I dropped her. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Um, I was just I was just saying um, uh, I I got really interested in Liquid, and um, I think I tweeted at Adam actually one day. I said, Adam, why why wouldn't a bunch of cypherpunks like individual cypherpunks, um, you know, kind of fork the Elements project and make our own Liquid instance for the community, right? Yep. Yeah, and actually, um, there's a, there's a Telegram group, right, where a bunch of people were discussing right. how they might do that. So I was like, "Wow, this is really cool." I joined the discussion and made a suggestion, which was to uh, do something first, which is sort of less work, and then move on to running a full network, which is to operate a second peg. So. Um, the in Liquid, the blocks are signed by block signers, and then there's also a peg manager which is operated by the same HSMs, and those keys are the same in today's Liquid network, but they don't have to be. So you could actually introduce a second peg that was operated by completely different people, and so it struck me that it would be easier to you know, set up some HSMs or software operated by different people around the world with you know, some kind of two out of three or 11 out of 15 or some suitable size and have a Cypherpunks Bitcoin, like a CBTC, 7LBTC. So I think that'd be pretty cool to, uh, to get there. Yeah, I remember we had discussed that uh, very early on. And at some point, I remember we were talking and you said, well, why don't, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to collaborate, you know, um, it, it, yeah, at least in the, in the beginning or to, until we figure out what we want to do. And I, I remember um, uh, you had kind of invited me to, to join the Federation and, uh, and kind of collaborate. So I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, I'm glad to be a member of the Federation. It feels really cool to um, even be now part of the oversight board to be able to you know, kind of uh, talk to all of these large companies and uh, 
you know, oversee them, uh, so to speak, on behalf of like the BIS community or the Bitcoin community. And uh, it's 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 pretty cool. Uh, it's 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 also going back to um, like what I was saying when you dropped out was uh, the small uh, or the the so-called block size debate. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoiners obviously have seen very low fees uh, up until very very recently, the past few months, and so there wasn't uh, a really obvious need for layer two. Right, even Lightning was pretty much dead the past couple of years. But we all know it's coming, right? Matt Matt said the uh, the other day on the show, Bitcoin <laughs> fees are Bitcoin fees are designed to pump forever, which is a very that one triggered a lot of people. Well, users want users want the best of all worlds, right? They want the perfect security of the Bitcoin blockchain. They want the perfect privacy. They and they want it all for free, right? They want low fees too, um, but that doesn't really work because you need uh, you need to pay for miners, and obviously we're doing that by inflating the block, uh, the Bitcoin supply now. But as it transitions to you know directly users paying the miners uh, with the transaction fee market, um, tra- on-chain transactions are going to become very ex- uh, expensive, and this is something that um, people need to accept and people need to understand. And so. Um, this is the this is where the trade offs begin, right? I think Adam Adam put this uh, in in a tweet uh, a few months back. He said it's kind of like when um, the internet was starting and uh, congestion control was getting added into the TCP layer, right? There was this huge um, debate. Well, we didn't need congestion control before, so of course the users want to have uh, you know as much bandwidth as possible. They don't want to like uh, have like a fee market, so to speak. Right, Adam. That, that, yeah, I remember yeah. You. I mean, I was trying to make an analogy that would resonate with people who are familiar with, uh, you know, routers and operating ISPs and kind of TCP. So uh, knowing knowing you that you run your own ISP, I guess that one uh, made me, you know, was like something that paused to you. But I guess my point was that um, you know people are suddenly saying, well, Bitcoin transactions are always cleared for like once Toshi by in the past. Why is why is there this forced change? And really, it was just the you know, kind of like the internet was extremely unloaded, and so the flow control protocols never got a workout. No packets got dropped through to congestion, and you know suddenly you have the AOL effect and perpetual September and more users than it can cope with, and of course the flow control gets a workout, and then people get upset and like, why? Where is this flow control coming from? I don't like flow control. I was like, yeah, but I mean. <laughs> What are you going to do? <laughs> you know, there's more demand than possible capacity. It has to degrade gracefully. I mean, I, th- I think I, I might say something more controversial actually about main chain block space stepping away from liquid and lightning. I saw there's some questions about uh, why liquid instead of lightning. So maybe we'll come back to it in a sec. But I mean, I think even just about Bitcoin alone, the main chain, and you know, Matt's comment, fees are going to pump forever. I think for, to me at least, Bitcoin is about, you know, bearer, like empowering end users with bearer hard e-cash that can't be seized and you can spend. And so, it, it, you know, it doesn't have to be cups of coffee, but I think if the demand for block space got extremely high because there's lots of traders that's one problem 
or institutions or whales such that you know the fees got to be consistently i don't know a thousand dollars a transaction or something I, I would become a moderate big blocker i think at that point because i think that would have um you know priced out the differentiated use case by that i mean the the use case the banks can't compete with right so if you crowd out the, the main use case that's a problem um so you know, one of the thoughts with liquid actually was that it's if you've got traders and i understand not everybody's a trader right a lot of people just cold store and i think that's a a winning strategy as far as it goes um but the, the traders are just moving you know bitcoins and other assets between exchanges so they're going from like bitfinex custody to uh I don't know, Bitsy or some other exchange, and is one custodian to another. So the fact that they send out on a Bitcoin chain is is essentially spam, right? Because you know, if they could, if they had another way to transfer from custody of exchange A to custody of exchange B, Bitcoin chain doesn't need to see that, and they don't even get any benefit from themselves. And also, the people that are trading like that, they are um completely fee insensitive so it's, i think it's generally accepted that most of the fee escalation is related to impatient traders and the reason they don't care is you know maybe the average transaction size is ten thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars something like that and they're going to be paying you know 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 percent fees for their trade so you know whether they have to pay 10 cents or a dollar for a transaction they don't they really don't care so they'll just look at what's the fee and then they'll double it and send it right just to be sure they're in the next block so and yeah adam let me jump in here real quick uh because i feel like we're getting into the weeds a little bit without giving a, a good overview um yeah. first first comes first uh the t t tell me tell me if this is a decent uh tldr you know quick summary of of what liquid is liquid is essentially a multi-sig of uh, partners that are running this network um, and you can move Bitcoin into that multi-sig to then transact on this side chain that is called a peg in or you can move you can move Bitcoin off of that and that is called a out and the peg in is a per, is a permissionless system where anyone can can peg in at will into this this multi-sig side chain and then uh, the peg out is requires uh, the federation members to allow that to happen would you agree on that summary yeah, I mean, there's actually um, so a few things there. That's that's correct. And for people's expectations, because you know when when Liquid was first announced, some of the wording was about exchanges and traders. So people assumed, oh, you'd have to be an exchange to transact on it or something. But actually, you know, the exchanges don't generally transact. It's just users, right? Um, <laughs> And and just to jump in, uh, so so and I missed a point. The reason a user would do that is because in return they get low fees, quick confirmations, uh, and confidential transactions, which is what you talked about earlier, where where the amounts are blinded. So when you look on chain, if you look at a Liquid Explorer as opposed to a a Bitcoin Block Explorer, it won't show you the amounts that are being sent between people. It will still show you the addresses. It'll look like a Bitcoin address, but it's a Liquid address. Um, but it doesn't show you the amounts and 
in, in, in regards to tokens, it won't show you what token is being traded either. Um, so that's why a user would consider switching into, into Liquid. Now, you mentioned something about traders. Um, I think we should just really talk about this in passing because I really feel like it kind of has hurt Liquid adoption so far in terms of my audience um, because it, it has, as you said, it kind of, it made people think like, oh, well, I'm not a trader, so I shouldn't care about it. Um, in terms of traders, what you mentioned is that they're willing to pay higher fees. And that is because on chain, um, what the scarce resource that is being traded is, is that block space. So you are being charged based on the amount of data you are sending, not the amount you are sending. So all else equal, a user that's sending a $10 transaction and a user that is sending a $2 million transaction, if they're paying the same fee rate, um, they're going to end up paying the same absolute fee. But obviously, the person who is sending the larger amount is going to be paying significantly significantly less percentage-wise than the person paying the lower amount. Now, when you add Lightning into the mix, Lightning fees are based on the amount you send. Um, Liquid, I guess, is is probably more similar to on-chain Bitcoin in terms of what their that fee market should look like, um, but it just hasn't been tested yet, right? There's just not that much volume there. So right now, it just acts as a, a, a very, very cheap transaction chain. Would you agree on that assessment? Uh, I think I'm going to switch networks briefly because I heard what you said, but it was breaking up on and off. Uh, okay, no problem. We'll be here when you come back. Consider a Chromium-based browser um, and incognito mode uh, or whatever, you know, so all your extensions are disabled. Wiz, what did you think about oh, my explanation? Okay. I was using Firefox. Let's try that. Uh, yeah, I guess that's um, that's pretty decent explanation. Um, it It is really uh, complex uh, and very, very technical, very deep. Um, you know, understanding of cryptography is required to to really uh, learn about all these things. And I, I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, I'm more of a uh, server guy, network engineer. Um, you know, I grew up in the data center, so I'm uh, I'm good at running Bitcoin nodes, basically. And the the cool thing about Liquid for me is that uh, it's it's an actual blockchain, and it's optimized for like Adam said, uh, or uh, like exchanges, right? So obviously, um, I, I, I guess we'll get into BISC later on, but um, Lightning is really cool, in my opinion, for, um, you know, if you want to, if you go to this restaurant all the time or cafe or bar, you know, and you open a channel to them, you can do lots of uh, coffee transactions, um, you know, with your trade channel to the bar. And anytime you can, uh, you know, publish that, channel state to the, the network and settle it on chain. So it's a really cool way of essentially batching many, many transactions into a single on-chain transaction. And Liquid is kind of that too, right? It's, um, it's, it's taking lots of transactions that are between the members of the Federation and, uh, and also of the other users of the, um, of the, of the side chain. And kind of batching them all into a very few amount of uh, Bitcoin on-chain transactions. So they both um, they both kind of uh, you know make the usage of the Bitcoin base layer blockchain more efficient. So um, Adam, are you back now? Yeah. 
Is yeah, yeah, back. Uh, so right. Um, I think Matt was pointing at the the peg in versus peg, peg out asymmetry. Uh, no, I mean. I went farther okay. than that, um, okay. but I, I think I said everything. I, I think I, th I think you would agree with me. I tried to give a high-level summary of the fee structure between Liquid, Lightning, and OnChain um, yeah. and why someone would want to use Liquid um, and why you mentioned traders to begin with uh, and, and why they pay significantly yeah. less fees in terms of percentage because they send larger amounts. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you want to go into the kind of security model for? Yes. So I want to. I want you to coins. Yeah. So 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 basically, we started off this this dispatch with, you know, Bitcoiners have many tools available to us. They all have different trade offs. Uh, every time a new tool gets added to a Bitcoin user's arsenal, um, that makes me happy. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I started Dispatch. This is one of the reasons why I've been doing Tales from the Crypt for over, you know, almost three years now um, is because these tools are awesome that we have the ability to use them, but not everyone needs to use them and not all of them are suited for everybody. So in the case of Liquid, um, I think a good place to go here is, you know, what are what are the trade-offs to Liquid? You know, what are the concerns? What are, you know, what should people way in their heads when they're deciding whether or not they're going to use liquid versus on-chain versus lightning. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, from a user perspective, it's, it's another trade-off. Um, and so it's, um, it's not as unseizable or as unfreezable because, you know, there remains a possibility that this federation of businesses could shut down. And then, you know, you'd have to get your funds out of it. But it's, uh, it has extended functionality like confidential transactions and other assets like stable coins, you know, Tether and so on. And it's cheaper and faster for the moment, though, you know, that, that depends on usage, right? If uh, usage grows a lot, it could end up with the same fee situation as Bitcoin. Um, and the capacity is similar to Bitcoin in terms of transactions per hour or something. So it's, you know, maybe one and a half or two times as many that might grow a bit when we improve the crypto efficiency with bulletproofs, but still it's not hugely different to Bitcoin. And, um, but I think one interesting uh, comparison here is if you look at the old electronic cash system by David Chaum in the 90s, um, it had the property of extremely strong privacy. So like zero cash, Zcash, but even better in principle, um, but it's completely centralized. And so because of the really strong privacy, there was no way at all for them to do any selective censorship. They couldn't tell anything. You know, the, the company operating the bank with a double spend at those just literally couldn't correlate anything. And so there was no real censorship risk because there's no, no information left to figure out what's a censor, but it was a risk that could shut the whole system down. And so it had that property and Bitcoin has a property that, you know, there's, there's some kind of pseudonymity based privacy, but you know, the amounts are visible, 
the UTXO history is visible and you can kind of piece together some information from that. But it's very decentralized. So, you know, if, even if you find something that, that, you know, a given country wants to block or something, it's pretty hard to do because there are miners everywhere and the miners are anonymous. So it's kind of a different model. And I think liquid lies in between the two. So that's my assertion that liquid is, you know, in some ways a bit closer to the Chom system because it has more crypto fungibility. The confidential transactions adds meaningful privacy, though not as good as the Chom model. And it's a bit more centralized. You know, it's still more decentralized than single server Chom model. So it's somewhere in between those two models. Um, and so, you know, for, for general use, I think one interesting way to use it, and we've seen, you know, organically more users doing this is to put sort of moderate amounts into liquid, like not cold storage savings, but, you know, spending money, amount of money you're going to spend online in a month or something like that. And then you can transact cheaply and then you can, you know, take funds out and put them back in with the uh, peg out or peg in and that, you know, the peg out and peg in is a little bit analogous to the lightning open channel, closer channel. Uh, with the see. difference, with the difference being with, with lightning, you can close a channel. Either party can close a channel right. at will. Right. But yep. with, but, 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 but do you, is, is, is there, is there too much, I mean, I think the goal, right, is ultimately some kind of atomic swap system for liquid. So wouldn't yep. that just alleviate the whole peg out thing? Like the peg out is more for like a settlement of of like major, like the Federation or whatever. Well, yeah. So what's, um, I mean, there are lots of different ways to peg out. Many of them are countless and some of them exchange-based and exchanges often have like two tier signup processes where you can get through the first tier and do crypto only. And then you get through the second tier if you want wire transfers. So if you're doing like liquid Bitcoin to Bitcoin, you could make exchanges with just a, but then we tier. have, but, yeah, but then we have a centralized custodian probably going to oh, yeah. have to have KYC. Uh, so, so just, just unpack this here. The fear is yeah. right. The fear is, is you have funds on liquid. Yeah. Uh, you have them as liquid Bitcoin. Hopefully you don't have too much, but you have, well, let's say what well, you have, whatever funds you have as liquid Bitcoin. And then the Federation gets, you know, they get compelled to freeze the network or their, their, their funds get seized. The, the multi-sig gets seized. And this is why multi-jurisdictional is involved. And you have all these different companies to try and reduce that risk. But that is the right. fear, right? The fear is that happens and you can't get back out, that you lose your Bitcoin. Right. It's the same idea as like a custodial risk, um, but obviously, you know, significantly better than just trusting a single custodian, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one thing that, so I mean, well, there's a couple of points. So one is that there are multiple ways to uh, go between liquid and Bitcoin to, to get out. Um, one is... To atomic swap with another user and there is a tool to do that um so that would be just two users that, that happen to want to go in the opposite direction and you know as with join market and things like that sometimes user services just spring up where people you know market make right. and they don't mind going backwards and forwards taking a small fee they speed it up for somebody else they give them privacy 
So there's that, and then there are three services that are kind of uh, accountless, like no sign up. So one is SideShift, another is Flip, another is Liquidity, and they, they like websites or Telegram bots, things like that. And you basically you know, put two addresses in, you pay a small fee, and they they swap it. And uh, it's like old school shapeshift. It's like yeah, uh, yeah. momentarily yeah. custodial with no account. And they just do, there's a third party that does the swap for you. Right. And then the new one, which just appeared out of nowhere in the last you know, few weeks that people have been talking about, is this side swap wallet. Um, and that has integrated some of these things into a smartphone app, which is kind of got a curious, but it's uh, it's a very nice use it simpler interface in a way, which is it's technically only a liquid wallet. You know the other wallets that Blockstream made, the Aqua wallet and a Green wallet, are both liquid and Bitcoin wallets. But SideSwap is technically only a liquid wallet. However, you can interoperate with Bitcoin via peg in and peg out. So there's a tab for that. And so if you want to pay somebody on Bitcoin, you peg out. If you want to receive some money from a Bitcoin wallet, you do a peg in. And so that, that's your user interface. Now, both of the peg out and the peg in go via the service. So it has the same kind of behavior as the side swap, oh, sorry, the, um, you know, liquidity side shift and so on. But they also um, are doing some atomic swaps. So in, in wallet, you can swap liquid Bitcoin for uh, liquid tether or for euros eurx which they're the issue which side swap the company is the issuer of actually so um and some of those things are are atomic and it you know it, they're evolving and improving it over time so they just did a release it looks like uh, today actually where they added a peg out feature which which was missing in the previous version and so there's a there's a telegram channel it's called uh, side swap underscore IO on Telegram, and they're talking about their roadmap and stuff. So it seems like they've got a lot of trustless things planned, like user coordinate, because they're the they're the kind of counterparty in all the swaps at the moment. But they're interested to support user swaps so that different users can come and uh, coordinate on it in this way. So I think there is an opening there for them to do some more trustless peg in and peg out where, you know, you atomically pay them and they pay you from there. You atomically pay them in liquid Bitcoin and they give you Bitcoin on the main chain, but in atomic fashion. Right. Right. Um, so the, 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 the fear, right. The fear is, is that custodians block the exit. Right. So, so it, it there's two, the way I look at it is there's two ultimate solutions here or mitigations. Maybe solutions is the wrong word. It's too absolute. Two, two yeah. mitigations. And that's either user-driven pegouts, the ability for a user to basically execute a pegout um, on their own without a, you know, the Federation easily being able to stop them, which seems pretty complicated to me. And I, I don't know if you want to go into that. Alternatively, some kind of atomic swap market that is distributed rather than centralized, something like a like a join market type of situation where it's coordinated loosely between the actual users themselves. Um, I mean, I, I guess a, a bigger thing would be using BISC 
Um, but that yeah. that's more heavy. That's more heavy. Like I'm envisioning kind of some kind of lightweight marketplace app that allows yeah. you to be on both sides. Would you agree? Well, I mean, I think I think that yeah. I mean, Bisc is one way. Uh, Hodl Hodl has some liquid Bitcoin slash Bitcoin swaps and trades and loans and things. So you might be able to do it on Hodl as well, and that's evolving over time. But you know, even with the side swap app, if they get the you know as as they improve it, if they get the atomic swap out, even though it's uh, you know, a centralized company that's doing it, you don't really have to trust them because you either get your main chain Bitcoins or you keep your liquid Bitcoins, right? So your main remaining, right. so you don't have that transitory risk that the, you know, a centralized service provider. Like you know, side shift funds didn't complete. Yeah, they could take your coins and not pay you. And like, oh man, that's, now you'd have to argue about it online. You may or may not get your money back. Um, where the, the other kind of binary risk is the, the whole federation shuts down for some reason. So that one, yeah, that's that's a, you know, that's that's a side effect of the uh, current architecture, and but the the transitory risks I think are fixable because of this kind of atomic cross chain swap, um, and that could be. You know, it sounds like looking at what SiteSwap are saying that they are interested to allow users to put offers like, you know, some kind of bulletin board. So it's not really an order book in the sense that there's a, a custodian, but an offer like you can offer to swap for a fee. And I guess they'll match or let you search it or something. So they're developing that. So, that, but that would also be, I presume, I mean, that would have to be, you know, atomic, right? Because users could otherwise exit scam each other, right? So right. That, that kind of thing's possible. And that, that is a kind of mixture of, you know, a coordinator role, which is the wallet backend, and users placing offers. So I think it's it's kind of an app wrapper around something BISC like for you know a subset of use cases. Um, so about you, you mentioned another thing there, which was so I should I should explain actually why um, the pegout asymmetry is there. So it's actually not to do with um, policy, but security, which is if you, uh, the the block signers, and there are you know, all these different exchanges and people involved, like Quiz is one of the uh, participants in the network. So some, a subset of them are operating servers, you know, with firewalls and stuff, and also an HSM inside. So the keys to do the peg and a block signer in the HSM, and the HSM is running a lot less code, so it's easier to control, you know, uh, remote hacking risk for the HSM. It's gonna be very hard to get keys out of that. But the server itself, you know, obviously it's it's locked down as far as you can, but it's still internet exposed server. So in theory, if you um, if somebody could hack, you know, two thirds of the host computers, the, the internet servers, and then override their instructions to just tell the HSM to peg it out to this user address. The whole, you know, the the liquid kind of peg wallet would basically become a warm wallet of some kind, right? Because you've got internet exposed hosts. Yes, the keys are on HSM, but the, if the internet exposed hosts operating system and code was compromised, it could just tell the HSM to do things and the HSM wouldn't understand enough 
to prevent it. And so when we were designing this in 2014 or so, Greg Maxwell hit on the idea of improving the security by having the pegouts be only go to uh, off, you know, offline hardware wallets of liquid members. And in that way, if somebody would compromise, you know, succeed in compromising all these servers and override the HSMs, they have to provide a proof to the HSM, the HSM can verify by itself that the, the payout is going to go to an address controlled by one of these hardware wallets belonging to the members. It's, it's technically a, a zero knowledge proof, so you don't really know which one, and just proves that the address was derived from one of these uh, XPubs. And so that's that's the concept, right? That if it becomes much less attractive to hack it, because all you do is you pay the Bitcoins to a liquid member, and that liquid member could, you know, um, peg out legitimately, so it's not so interesting to them. And you know, there's a bit of a trust assumption that they're less likely to, to just try and take the money because people know who they so, are. So the trade-off chosen was uh, slightly more, more trust in the federation at the benefit being less risk of you know complete loss of, of the system, right? From an yeah. external actor or something. Yeah, it kind of makes it uh, colder in a way. So it means that the... You know, in one way of thinking, the peg funds are cold. Like you can move them around inside the network logically, user to user. But if somebody wants to take them out, they actually go to a cold wallet. And then what typically happens is one of the service providers like Sideshift or, you know, Sideswap, um, Bitfinex, you know, one of these exchanges, uh, there are some people that are like prop traders, so companies that do trading. So those guys, they are actually going to give you the funds that you requested to pay out from their own like hot wallet, cold wallet, and then they're going to fetch it out of the peg out wallet later when they run out of funds. So, so that means they, ex they absorb the risk, basically. So... What I, so so an advantage of being a federation member is that you're able to you know to do that process yourself to your own cold storage. Yeah. Um, the so so enlighten me here from from when from reading the website. My understanding is there's a significant amount of federation members, but at any given time, only sixteen are active. Is that is that correct? Uh, that's a side effect of the current implementations so the current federation is 11 out of 15 and that was kind of hard-coded in the first version and we're in the process of rolling out an upgrade that switches to dynamic federations that can support larger numbers and people leaving and joining so i should clarify as well that blockstream is you know, a technology provider we are not able to do auto upgrades the Liquid boards will, you know, look at let's say the release notes and and see if they like an upgrade, and they have to actually, you know, depending on what kind of upgrade it is, they have to physically be in front of and, um, you know, push buttons on the on the hardware box. So it's not like remote upgradable over the internet for security reasons, and they right. have to actually interact with it. And we we can't upgrade it, and that's by design. Um, so, um. 
Yeah, so that will become more dynamic over time. So yeah, but but at the moment it's an eleven of fifteen, and if you look around on the Block Explorer, you can find the Peg Wallet, and it stands out because it's an eleven of fifteen signature. And another interesting topic is there's a CSV, so a time block, and a two of three as well, which we can explain what that's about. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, a, a lot of people have questions about that because of I guess there was. Like there's an aging thing, and then it went back to the two of three, um, right. which represents a security risk. But b- before I get to that, just real quick, it's eleven yeah. of fifteen. So, like, Wiz is not a part of that eleven of fifteen, right? Yeah. So the the the, the problem is that the original uh, version of Liquid was hard coded to eleven of fifteen. And since that, and there were 15 members at launch, this is a few right. years ago, right? But now there's like over 50, and some people are, you know, happy to use the network services of another member, and you can peg out without having an HSM, so you don't need to be. There's a kind of list of, of you just submit like a hardware wallet XPub. Uh, okay. um, some, people, some people submit two, right? Because they got two different applications or. So Windows like XPub is 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 approved he's he's got an approved xpub but he's not running an hsm yet right right and so there are people that may never want to run hsm because you know they they're cloud or oriented or they don't have a machine room a lot of people it. do and so that but at the moment the other problem is it's not that dynamic and so and actually changing the federation membership is uh you know tricky you've got to think about the game theory because, you know, if if somebody was to attack the system from the inside, you know, and they voted somebody off, they could do that iteratively until they controlled it, right? So there's there's a bunch of, you know, it, it requires a more than two thirds to to do a change, and it's for that kind of reason. So there's a bunch of logic about how the federation can evolve, and it can't be too quickly either because the coins in the peg have to change. You know, the key because the keys have changed over time, right? So it's uh, right. it's not trivial, but the end result is you've got. You know, I mean, I think the other way to think about it is, even though it's built in a different way, it's a kind of blockchain assembled out of instead of miners, HSMs. The HSMs can change, which moves it. You know, with Dynafed, it moves it a bit less from a kind of fixed group businesses towards something. That's dynamic and evolves, and that's, that's so. How does that look? How, how do you mean? <laughs> how does how does like the Dynafed look in practice? Uh, this is a, very, a future goal, yeah. right? Sorry. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, we we've, we've uh, we made a release recently of the uh, Elements D, which is the, the full node for Liquids, and you know, power users can run one, and you run you know, a Bitcoin node and an Elements node, and they. They talk to each other, and that can verify everything about the chain, the pegins, and the liquid transactions, and so on. So that the most recent release of that is dynamic federations ready, but you know the next release and the next release are needed to uh, actually get it active. So it's not active yet, but that's something that's happening. I'd say in the next quarter or so. Um, and of course, it's it's you know subject to the liquid members liking the the feature set and upgrading to it, right? And once they have that, there's there's likely to be some changes because there's you know new participants in the network since a couple of years ago. 
you know, like Siteswap, for example, or liquidity. There are lots of people who are quite active in building products and services like Vulpen. They've got, you know, Liquid Taxi, Marina Browser, uh, Plugin Wallet. So there are lots of um, active development and service companies that would have liked to run a functionary but couldn't because of the lack of dynamic uh, change in the network. So that will enable that that change to happen. So, but what how's the, they like will rotate? Is that what happens? Is like they um, rotate randomly? Uh, no. So today with the eleven of fifteen, there's a kind of um, there's a consensus protocol, and um, the block is proposed in turn by in a round robin, so in a circle, each proposes, and then blocks have to be signed by uh, two thirds of them. Actually, all of them that are online try to sign, and with dynamic federations, it's not rapidly changing. It's just if you know if somebody goes out of business, then you probably want to remove them because you know maybe they sell their equipment, <laughs> right? If they go bankrupt, or you know you get somebody new that wants to join that's starting a new application, like uh, SiteSwap, for example. Nobody heard about them until a few, you know, until very recently, and they're doing a lot of stuff. So you know they joined the liquids, right. and maybe they would want to run a functionary, let's say. So then that would basically be up to the liquid federation to like discuss amongst themselves to add them and then mechanically to add them to call some APIs on the, on the liquid uh, hardware servers to add this new, uh, new block signer. And that would, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's something that has to be done relatively slowly because the, the peg keys have to, you know, they go from, you know, let's say 11 of 15 to 12 of 16 or something to keep the threshold. And so, you know, and if somebody left at the same time, you've got to move the keys, the coins off the old multisig onto the new multisig. So you can't, you know, you can't turn over keys too quickly or the redundancy for control of the you know, ability to roll the, the coins forward in the peg wallet could get degraded. So, okay, so so that that make that makes sense to me. Um, we had uh, so first of all, I, I we have freaks in the chat. By the way, freaks, um, the way I, I consider dispatch, you know, I think it's hosted by the audience. I I'm just the moderator, and that that is is one of the reasons why the format of the show is the way it is. So I appreciate you all throwing comments into the live chat here, um, whether that's through Twitter, Twitch, or YouTube. I do personally think Twitch is, is the best uh, for that. Um, but I appreciate you all. Um, we have a bunch of freaks in here basically saying that Liquid is centralized. I want to just make it very clear to the freaks that this is an obvious trade-off decision by, by it, it is not, Liquid was never meant and will never be meant to replace regular the, the, the Bitcoin network never was right. meant to replace the Bitcoin network. It, it is making a clear centralization trade-off. It is being more centralized for lower fees, quicker transactions, and the ability to adapt at a quicker pace than Bitcoin can. Like that, that is, that is literally the trade-off that the sidechain has made. That is going to be more centralized. The question is, right. is if we can make a network that sits alongside Bitcoin 
that is not too centralized where you have censorship, but is is centralized enough that you that you have those benefits that come with it. Um, right, so right. on that topic, we had this major concern. I mean, to be honest, I think it was a little bit blown out of proportion because as far as I'm concerned, liquid is still in the beta phase and it definitely was at the time. Um, but we had yeah. this situation where, uh, I, I guess the, the liquid funds in this, in this multi-sig aged past 2015 blocks, 2015 blocks. Um, I guess right before, like, that's basically a difficulty adjustment, uh, amount of blocks. I, I, I imagine that's not a coincidence. And then it reverted back to this two of three emergency thing, uh, right. where the two of three keys were held by Blockstream HSMs. Um, in geographically uh, distributed locations, should we yes. talk about this this concern and and how it's been alleviated? It has been alleviated since then, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was actually so. First of all, let's just talk about the two of three to explain why they're there and then how they how the behavior diverged from what it should have been. <laughs> so basically, the two of three is a sort of disaster recovery plan and the keys are actually not you know they're on they're in very cold storage they're not loaded in anything they've never been used they're they're there for a kind of very you know hopefully very unlikely eventuality which is enough hardware breaks and enough you know physically fails and enough liquid members fumble or fail at backup and you lose one too many keys to recover the funds and that that could potentially be because you know there's like hundreds of millions of dollars in it already so and that could become you know a billion or 10 billion depending on usage and market cap and what what people use it for so the defensive kind of bitcoin thinking was well it would be kind of irresponsible to have no disaster recovery plan just in case the unexpected actually happens right and there are certainly bitcoiners around who really wish they had a better backup plan who would have a lot more bitcoins today if they had you know a second backup kind of thing so you know clearly it would be very easy to remove this two of three and there's like you know a few lines of code delete that one then it's 11 to 15 then there's no backup plan and there's no oh blockstream could do something so but i think it's the right thing to keep the backup plan so then you know, the other thing is, obviously, we actively don't want the ability to touch the funds. So it's not just um, a two of three, it's a two of three with a time lock. So it's kind of dead man switch, right? So what's supposed to happen is that the two of three would only ever become active if the network stops processing transactions for about a month, like it literally ceases to process blocks. Which were a third of the node, and so if that if that time was met, you know that the blocks are still being produced. The the keys in the the, the coins in the, the wallet should keep getting pushed forward into the future. You know, they would get kind of spent or spent forwards or pegged in or pegged out, and it would just you know keep getting pushed forwards. And that's how it's designed. That's what it's supposed to do. So. And that's that's kind of a neat feature because it means that you know we have Blockstream has these two or three backup keys, geo distributed cold storage, but they're not hot 
unless like they have no actually no power until the network stops for a protracted period of time which you know normally it's signing once a minute right so that's a pretty extreme kind of downtime situation but now where it where it came unstuck or like it it, it ran into problems is that we uh we had this kind of confluence of bugs basically and so there is a target time window where it tries to roll transactions forward if they haven't been otherwise spent by a peg out and it, it was supposed to be four weeks but it was where the hsm code had two weeks and the host had four weeks so it was a mismatch and so it left the window where it's trying to roll them forward shorter than it should have been and then there was another bug that was kind of related and we were aware of the bug at you know after some time and you know, started trying to fix it but then things got kind of crazy with covid and uh a number of functionary members were kind of a lockdown so they couldn't and because of the security features you know that you have to be uh physically upgrades on particularly on the hsm um it made it difficult to quickly uh you know to fix this but what, there was a period where there was something like 870 coins that were right like about 40 minutes and that was the worst point but you know so we found a more creative way to fix it um basically by upgrading a subset and that was enough i mean it's all like fixed properly over time but you know there was an immediate kind of so four the, node upgrade i think so the fix is extending the lock time uh well yeah, yeah to, to set it should have been which is uh four weeks on both the hm and the host and so it starts to roll forward i think it's two weeks before expiry so if if they're less than two weeks so if they're more than two weeks until expiry it just leaves them sitting there because they may get organically used for a for a peg out. So, um, yeah. My question is: is I guess the fear is, is Blockstream in a position to force that situation to go into a two of three? Uh, are, no, are, are, that's, that's not members allowed to block it. Able to block it is is basically my question. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that other than this bug. You know, we have no remote upgrades. They have to source code everything. And um, so long as they keep transacting, you know, the keys could be posted on the internet and nothing would happen effectively, right? Because they'd be powerless. I mean, that would be a, a good thing to do because if the network ever did stop for like a couple of weeks, that, that would be risky. But just to illustrate, they have, they should, you know, by design have no power unless the network stops for at least um so that's that's the trade-off and you know i i even though that uh has its has its risks i think the risk of funds loss is sufficiently high that's good to have this this kind of uh backup situation so um, to be clear a plurality of federation members can stop this from going to the two oh, or yeah. three period yeah, right? so it's basically as long as the network continues to process blocks it shouldn't happen okay awesome um can you tell us anything about the hsms or 
Um, so, I mean, not that much really. I mean, there's, we're working on a second version. We've deployed a couple of the new version ones, which have more kind of tamper detection <clears throat> circuits and things like that <clears throat> than the first one. I mean, the first one has some kind of key zeroing tamper stuff as well, but the new one has more, it's a kind of more powerful, more modern HSM that we designed. And what we're thinking to do actually is when we get the DynaFed deployed is to open a lot of it. So open, open you know, the source for the HSM and sell the HSMs for people who are interested to operate liquid light networks or to operate, you know, uh, different pegs into it. So at the moment, there's one peg which is operated by the same set servers as the block signer. But in principle, there could be other pegs operated independently, and you could choose which peg you like the, you know, the independence and uh, commitments, privacy, and so on of. Um, I saw one question in the in the chat score about a minute ago, which I thought was quite interesting and related to this, which is the question was, um, has there have been a case where the Federation has blocked a peg out? And so the answer is um, not, no, that, that won't happen because technically the peg out is, is only going to the hardware wallets of the Federation members, right? And so if, you know, you, you would go to the site swap wallet and post your Bitcoin address, and then they would pay that from their, from the coins they have uh, in their own wallet. And if they run out of coins in their own wallet, they'll, they'll have you wait until you know, the peg out happens, and then they'll give you the coins that are pegged out. So as far as I know, it hasn't happened. But technically, the direct peg out is to you know, this, this kind of offline hardware wallets, right? Um, so... Uh, you, you mentioned something else there, Matt, which was um, we have a plan, like a, a roadmap, a new design to have direct user pegouts. And so I think it was Andrew Polstra who thought of this idea. So recall the original offline hardware wallet design was uh, Greg Maxwell's way to improve the security. So more recently, Andrew Polstra, who's the uh, head of research at Blockstream, um, hit on the idea that you could allow a direct user peg out and still have sort of similar security uh, effect by making it slower. So, you know, lots of people can run full nodes. So if there was ever a peg out that didn't correspond to, you know, if, if coins left the wallet that didn't correspond to a matching peg out, lots of people would notice and complain. And so if you made a process where there was an API for you know, a threshold of the HSMs to retroactively block a peg out in progress, you know, the default is most likely that will never happen and they'll just go out, but they'll be delayed by, you know, 100 blocks or something that will give humans time to react if something goes wrong. And that would achieve a sort of similar effect without needing to pass through the hands of a middleman, you know, of somebody who's going to give you their own coins and then fetch them out of the... Uh, of the wallet. I mean, so that, that was a idea. Ba basically, well, first of all, uh, we have freaks in the chat asking um, what an HSM and HSM is, which means that uh, the majority of the freaks coming in through the audio feeds are are, are also confused. That means hardware security module. 
Um, basically yeah. a physical device that is encoded to a certain set of rules. Uh, for, for a Bitcoiner, the way you could think of it is like a purpose-built hardware wallet that's always connected to the internet um, and is signing based on a specific set of rules um, to, to reduce uh, the risk of any kind of hot wallet uh, attack. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so Adam, I mean, what, what you're basically saying is, and I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me, and this is why I keep rattling the atomic swaps drum, um, is, is, is basically the easiest way to mitigate the risk of, of not being able to exit liquid Bitcoin, exit the liquid network, um, is, is competition is having a lot of different, you know, a lot of different, uh, people, organizations offering the ability to swap out, um, hopefully technical improvements in terms of like kind of distributed decentralized atomic swaps. Um, but also on top of all of that, I mean, I think the fact that confidential transactions exist on liquid, um, and you can't see the amounts, um, adds another layer that makes censorship more difficult, uh, just because transactions are more private on the network. Um, on that note, I'm I'm kind of curious. Um, I think the confidential transactions aspect is really cool on Liquid. And, you know, it's kind of, I know it's a hot button issue. It's something that I, I want to, I, I kind of want to see on chain Bitcoin as well. Um, but we have it on Liquid right now and I can play around with it on Liquid. Um, is there a specific reason why, so confidential transactions is blinds the amounts. Um, right. It blinds the amounts, and then, and then there's we're we're calling it what you confidential assets. I think is what you're calling the fact that it blinds the tokens. Correct. Right. And so 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 if you're sending tether or if you're sending hundred sats, you can't tell which which is happening. Or it could be it could be like a a, a spaceship in Samson's uh, video game, like an NFT in Samson's video game or a hundred sats or tether. And you wouldn't tell what it is and they can all be coin joined together. Um, is there a reason why stealth addresses haven't been added to liquid versus because so stealth addresses is this idea where, I mean, uh, the show is a perfect example with this batch. If, if I could post a stealth address um, and then, people could donate and don't, they don't completely dox the amounts and who's donating. Is there a reason why stealth addresses aren't on liquid yet? Um, it would, it would be compatible. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I was pretty interested in stealth addresses and trying to find ways to uh, make them more efficient. I think the downside of stealth addresses is the recipient basically has to try to decrypt every, every stealth transaction that goes on the blockchain period right so it's like cpu heavy for the recipient and so it's a little tricky to do it on a smartphone for example right so you have to download all transactions i mean if every transaction is a stealth transaction which would be ideal you'd have to download them all and you have to be a full node and you'd have to like try and decrypt them all so that's the kind of downside and there were some trade-offs as well people were like well you know well i will make sure that mine like start with this number and I'll only try to decrypt a tenth of it or something, but then you've got less privacy. So you yeah, so, know that the overhead is the issue. So, I mean, it's this possible. is a, this is a particular use case that I've been focused on pretty heavily because I've been trying to, 
Um, I've been independently trying to help like activists and stuff accept Bitcoin privately. Um, and yeah. like the, the, the dream, right, is that they can post like a text string and they can just receive Bitcoin in a private way, right? And it, it kind of, I mean, I mean, Adam, you're a legend here. I, I'm, I, am, I am just a, a mere mortal. I just use these things. Um, it seems like Monero has figured out a way to do this stealth address where I, they can just post a, a string of, of, of letters and numbers and they can just receive donations in a, in a relatively private way. Um, can't Liquid be that as, as well? Like, can't Liquid have that stealth address function? Like, what, what, am I missing something here? No, I mean, there, there are lots of things which would be possible with wallet support. So Liquid is very... Bitcoin-like, but with extensions for confidential transactions and things like that. And so, you know, how how the wallet presents that to users, some of the features are like wallet only. They don't need network changes, right? And so I think stealth addresses are like that. It doesn't doesn't need any network, it doesn't need like a soft fork or anything. You can just do it. Uh, it usually sends some extra data in an op true or something. But so I think it's a trade-off you could do in a wallet, and it just has a cost. You know, now you need a full node, or you need to semi-trust a server to scan them for you. But at least the whole network can't see it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think if that could be made more lightweight, or people would just deal with it, right? Run full nodes and live with this cost. That ideally, stealth addresses would be the default type of address because if you think about it, it's very convenient that you can have an address that you can safely reuse. Like having to keep changing addresses is very confusing to new users. So it's kind of ideal solution. And I tried for a while to see if I could find a way to, you know, accelerate the crypto or find a different way to do it, but I didn't find any way to do it. <laughs> so we're stuck with this kind of, you know, heavy CPU stuff. And Actually, I mean, about the, you know, Monero things, it, it actually adopted, you know, a bunch of stuff that uh, we did at Blockstream or that I proposed before Blockstream. So I proposed a way to shrink their original linkable ring, ring signature by 50%. And they, you know, they went off and hard forked it in. So I was like, well, okay. They actually do R&D and deploy it. That's cool. And... Um, then more recently, they did. Uh, they added confidential transactions to the RingSig, and there's another variant of um, the the way that Monero does things, which is more scalable, actually. So, at the same time I propose confidential transactions, I proposed um, a kind of uh, way to send um, other people dust. So uh, if you think about it, you could do this in Liquid. It just would require client support. So which is if the wallet just you know grabs other addresses and sends people one sat or zero sats or something. Yeah, that'd be great. And, and the wallets accept that and just ingest it and use it. It doesn't, it doesn't have the forever growing UTXO set uh, side effect that the linkable ring signature does, but it has the same basically the same kind of privacy side effect. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And I'd actually proposed that at the same time as confidential transactions, but 
there's more ideas and uh, so, people have implemented. <laughs> so, I mean, Adam, you brought it up. Uh, look, I'm, I'm very privacy focused. The freaks here know this, the audience here knows this, um, you know, is, is to me, I think the whole idea of focusing liquid on traders, um, you know, I could get, I, I literally could give two shits. I do not care uh, what the traders use. I understand like it has knock on effects for, for the regular users in terms of them not using our chain space, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but confidential transactions, really fucking cool to me. Uh, so, so it, like, do you agree that there's, there's like, there's, I think there's like an area for, for liquid to excel in terms of, of increasing P2P person to person transaction privacy, transactional privacy in an easy, accessible way. Um, like you said, like little things like, like self-shuffling, self-shuffling on with confidential transactions actually can improve your privacy self shuffling on Bitcoin on chain. You just look like an idiot and you're just spending a shit ton right. of money like an idiot. Right. Yeah. Actually that was one of the things that Greg Maxwell got excited about confidential transactions when he realized, cause Greg was the original uh, proposer of coin joins some years right. before, I don't know, like 2011 or 12 or something. And so when he realized that confidential transactions work very well with coin joins and actually make any join a perfect coin join because you don't you don't know anything about the amounts, which is usually what creates the problem for coin joins. And he got he thought that was pretty, you know, more exciting and <laughs> got enthusiastic to put that together sort of thing. So it'd certainly be possible to, you know, run uh, you know, port port one of the coin join wallets to liquid, for example. It's very similar. And it, and it would be much more effective because, you know, all these debates between Samurai and Wasabi about, you know, change management and value matching and stuff like that. I think a lot of those things are simplified because you can basically join anything to anything. It doesn't even have to be the same asset type in Liquid. But, you know, exactly. It could be an NFT. It could be Tether. It doesn't fucking matter. Right. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, and... Right. Um, let's see. Backtracking a bit because we got got off on a lot of topics there. Uh, so we talked about the 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 like the uh, disaster recovery key. That was uh, how that why that's there. How it got fixed. Oh yeah. So something else I was going to say is that the you know the fact that liquid is federated is actually you know just a side effect. So the original sidechain white paper proposed a soft fork to Bitcoin that we actually implemented. Uh, Matt Carello did that, you know, in the early days when he was at Silver Blockstream. And that would be a kind of fully peer-to-peer sidechain. So there'd be a soft fork to Bitcoin. It's similar in concept to drive chains as, a, as another method. And so then the, the soft fork in Bitcoin would have, you know, just enough awareness of small proofs from the sidechain to verify that uh, these pegins are you know, from the from the side chain into the main chain are authorized, and then you don't need any HSMs or signers. It's like you know miners are effectively processing that without any keys. Um, and so I think it would you know be very nice to get back you know to get that next. So we just did 
know, the federated model because uh, there, there were more technical challenges and you wanna, you know, start somewhere and improve from it, right? So we did the federated one first, we're about to do the dynamic version and we're thinking about how to do, you know, how to do the next one. So I saw Sergio uh, from Rootstock has a, another new idea and then there's a drive chain thing that Paul Stortz has been working on. So, you know, it takes, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's an adventurous and complicated soft fork to make to Bitcoin, right, to support sidechains. But I think it's, you know, it's a very useful soft fork because it allows, you know, more decentralized opt-in features uh, for Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, the, the, you know, the side effects of the federation are, are felt because we, we really want to get to the fully peer-to-peer the other thing that kind of complicated the fully peer to peer version is you're you're effectively trusting miners, sort of, you know, um, more so than with direct Bitcoin, because with direct Bitcoin, everybody's running a full node and they can verify all the blocks. So if one miner goes crazy, you can ignore them, right? And it doesn't matter that much. But with um, with a side chain, you're sort of um, you know, the majority of the hash rate, basically, that was dishonest could steal from the sidechain wallet, you know, the sidechain peg wallet. Uh, so that's the trade-off with sidechains. And you can't really, you know, make a soft fork rule to verify the sidechain blocks, because if you do that, it's not a sidechain anymore. It's a, it's an extension block, and people don't like that for a good reason. Yeah. Uh, Adam, do you, yeah. do you think we'll ever see confidential transactions on main chain? I hope so. <laughs> It'd be a, certainly a much more interesting debate to have uh, than a block size debate from a few years ago. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking it might be, you know, a different set of people arguing on different sides, right? You know, I think so that, too. <laughs> you know, because because I mean, I I I also suggested to people when they were having the you know the block size debate that it would be a logical thing to do to increase the block size a bit, you know, like four times or something, and put in confidential transactions at the same time with the same kind of argument I was making about, you know, Liquid being a trade-off in between the very private Chorm server and the Bitcoin pseudonymity-based model, which is that, you know, what are the side effects of a bigger block? Well, you know, it's more expensive to verify there's increased risk of, you know, minor centralization. And what's what's the concern with minor centralization? Well, it's selective censorship. So if you've got more privacy, that kind of counteracts some of that centralization censorship risk. So I would say, I mean, you can't really measure it exactly, but I'd say there's a reasonable argument to be made that, you know, the more fungible it is, the more private it is, the bigger a block you can handle without that creating a, you know, that's a bad side effects because the miners don't know what to censor basically yeah and you get you get a bit of that in liquid but only a kind of you know light version of it i mean confidential transactions are not you know silver bullet right because you right. still have the transaction graph it's just you really can't tell what's change and what's payment and you know what what type is what so it, it gets lost pretty quickly it's easy to break the heuristics yeah much easier yeah, uh, Wiz, you've been quiet there for a while. Are you still live? 
I'm here and I've been uh, listening to Adam. Yes. Um, I, I, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts about the, uh, the federated model because um, I know we'll, we'll get to BISC later, but BISC is also a federated model. And I think this is, this is kind of an underrated uh, thing or a lot of people are maybe afraid of it because they don't understand why uh, you would make a federation in the first place. But um, the way I think about it is that every transaction has like, I don't know, maybe four or five properties. Um, so obviously security, privacy, censorship resistance, uh, the, uh, the cost of the transaction and the speed of the transaction, right? So I guess that's five and they all kind of, um, trade off on each other, right? Obviously we all know on the Bitcoin, uh, main chain, if you use a higher fee, then you'll get a higher speed. And, um, likewise, if you want some additional functionality, if you want to be able to trade, uh, then maybe you need more op codes in your transaction uh, when you approach like smart contract functionality. So the size of the transaction gets larger. And so therefore your fees will, will also be larger. And um, so, so all of these security, privacy, uh, functionality, censorship resistance, speed, and cost are all affecting each other. And um, if you change on any one of the variables, then the entire equation kind of changes. So of course, users want everything. Users want everything. They want the security of the Bitcoin main chain. They want uh, base layer privacy. They want censorship resistance. Um, they want the transaction confirmed right away and they want it all for free or low fees. But um, unfortunately, um, you know, this is, this is the downside of digital scarcity. There's only 21 million Bitcoins. That's what gives Bitcoin its value. But uh, at the same time, the same digital scarcity means that the space in Bitcoin's blockchain is scarce. And so that uh, will also increase in value, the, you know, the actual bytes. As you said, Bitcoin fees are designed to pump forever. And so it hasn't been super relevant to, to worry about Bitcoin on-chain fees for a long time until recently. And now, uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, we saw fees, I think they were over 300 sats per V-byte. And so uh, a typical on-chain transaction was approaching, uh, I think, like $25, $30. And if you extrapolate this out and you realize, okay, maybe not this cycle, maybe five years from now or 10 years from now, yeah, a Bitcoin transaction could cost several hundred dollars or even more. And so... Um, how do you how do you address this? Well, there's um, the the, feder the federated model is one way to kind of balance the equation of security and privacy and uh, and speed and and cost and functionality. So, um, obviously, with liquid, you know, you're trading off some of the security. You don't have the uh, Bitcoin base layer security that that blockchain provides. Maybe. Um, you know, you, you lose a little bit of censorship resistance. Maybe, I mean, the, the privacy gives you censorship resistance. Um, so it's, so it's, it's in a different way. If you use um, liquid, then you actually gain privacy because of the confidential transactions and the fees are lower, right? So you're kind of trading that security to gain privacy, to gain cheaper fees and also speed with the one minute block times. And so you, you, every federated model or side chain, um, or even other altcoin chains, they all are making trade-offs, right? Like there's no free lunch where you get everything for free anymore. Uh, the time of zero fee transactions and even low fee transactions is 
uh, probably gone. So this is why we use federations. And um, with BISC, for example, BISC is also a, a type of a federated model where uh, people want to trade. And obviously, Bitcoin's base layer does not support uh, random people trading with each other. And so um, one, one really funny thing, I think, is that um, people are really afraid of liquid. A lot of BISC users are really afraid of liquid because it's a federated security model. But they seem to forget that BISC is also um, a type of federated security model. Um, if there's any type of trade dispute, um, so so a long time ago, BISC originally started out with a two of three multi-sig model. And we talked about this on your other show, um, Tales from the Crypt, I think about almost two years ago. The two of three security model is um, extremely insecure because say, say, um, say Adam and Matt are going to trade some Bitcoin for some USD and uh, Wiz is the arbitrator here. You know, so these are the three key holders of our two of three multi-sig. Well, that's great if um, all the three people are actually separate people. But when you're dealing with um, anonymous people on, on a marketplace with like BISC, um, if I'm the arbitrator, I can just go to the BISC market and take all of the offers. And now I control two of the three keys. And I can steal all of the funds, and there's nothing that you can do about it. So, BISC realized this a long time ago that the two of three uh, security model with anonymous parties uh, is not secure, and so BISC changed to a similar um, time lock uh, trade protocol. So, um, as Adam explained, Liquid has this really cool 11 of 15 multi-sig with a time lock that will degrade to a two of three multi-sig after. Uh, set amount of time. I think it was four weeks. He said, "Well, BISC trades. Um, if if two people want to trade with each other on BISC, sometimes one person um, it's called it's also called like an option trade. Um, say you uh, take an offer to buy Bitcoin on BISC, but then as soon as you take the offer, the price tanks by twenty percent. Well, maybe you change your mind and you don't want to." make that payments now. So in other words, you you want to default on the trade. Even though your security deposit was, uh, say it was 15%, well, the price went down by 20%. So it actually makes sense for you to just abandon this trade. Well, your security deposit and the seller's funds are locked in this uh, two of two multi-sig. And if the other guy just disappears, that would lock those funds forever. So the BISC trade protocol also has a time lock where it's two of two um, I think it's uh, 10 days for, yeah, I think it's 20 days uh, is the hard time limit for a fiat to Bitcoin trade. After 20 days, it degrades to um, a, a single SIG where it just gets donated to uh, BISC, basically, right? So you now you're totally trusting the BISC federation um, in, in the case of uh, someone walking away. So for the most part, the BISC trades, um, the two trade counterparties are financially incentivized to complete the trade together just between themselves. But if there is a problem, then you essentially have to trust the BISC federation with that trade capital and the security deposits um, that they're going to mediate and you know examine any evidence. Did the guy make the payment or not? And then um, ref you know do a refund of the uh, trade trade capital to the the correct person. And so the BISC 
federated model has its own governance structure. Uh, it's not a company. It's 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 a DAO, right? It's a decentralized autonomous organization, and we, you know, there's only realistically like fifteen or twenty people, um, you know, who are the pseudonymous BIS contributors that have the voting rights to, you know, participate in this DAO. Of course, anybody can, um, but it's mostly the the contributors of BISC. And the more contributions you do, the more voting rights you get. And so, you know, I have a few percent um, voting power in the BISC DAO, and maybe the the OG founders have a little bit more. You know, it, it depends on how much you contributed. And from the DAO, you can have proposals. Um, you know, you, you can make decisions um, without a company and everyone's in a different jurisdiction. Some people are totally pseudonymous. So that's how the BISC Federation kind of achieves this um, multi-jurisdictional censorship resistance. No one country's government would be able to easily shut down the BISC DAO. And from that, we can actually um, have some federated uh, seed nodes, for example, right? So in the BISC Federation, I think there are four seed node operators, right? It's um, me, MZ, Devin, and Miker, I think are the four guys. And we also have um, some other semi-trusted, you know, in this federated security model services like the price feed. If you put an offer on BISC, the price changes every, uh, once per minute to the BISC price index, which is our, um, again, federated uh, kind of price oracle service for what the price of Bitcoin is. So if you say, I want to create a BISC offer that's, you know, 10% premium on the market, um, every one minute, your BISC node will connect to either me or the other price server operators, uh, price services, get the price of Bitcoin that we say is the price, you know, based on the open source software we're running, and your BISC node will adjust the, the price. Obviously, if one of the price so server operators was malicious, they could say the price of Bitcoin is $1, everyone would lower their offers to a dollar and you know, uh, you know, you could buy some really cheap Bitcoin, right? So there's a lot of trust in the BISC Federation, in this uh, DAO uh, organization. And Liquid also, you know, when you use Liquid, you're trusting the Federation and its governance structure and its functionaries to, you know, do what they are entrusted to do. And um, that's why I just think it's so strange why um, BISC traders would feel comfortable with the BISC Federation, but not the, the Liquid Federation. Um, um, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. I, th I think another thing that no, is yeah, yeah. comparable, maybe, is people will, you know, they'll use hosted wallets like, you know, Cash App or Exchange Wallet and things like that, or I guess PayPal is, is a kind of hosted well, some of these things you can buy Bitcoin, but you can't draw them. And so, you know, some people will use that, but if they if hear that Liquid is federated, they'll say, oh, no, I can't use that, right? Or they'll use a single exchange custody, <laughs> but they don't want to use a federated custody. So I think it's, it's counterintuitive, and Bitcoin is a benchmark, so everything new gets compared to Bitcoin, and then people want to be persuaded why it's better than Bitcoin. And of course, nothing is better than Bitcoin because if, if there was a way to improve Bitcoin, it would have already done it, right? So any any layer two is generally making cutting some corners, making something worse in one way to get some benefit in another way. So I mean, using Lightning as an example, 
you get uh, very cheap, very fast final transactions. And you say, well, why didn't Bitcoin do that? So, oh yeah, well, okay, let me tell you, right? You've got managed channels, you've got hot wallet risk. And so, okay, people start to call on the idea. But for the use sense, it's, but you just can't like, you know, move everything out of Bitcoin into Lightning. And of course, Lightning needs to, uh, you know, settle into and do arbitration between channel closed disputes or what have you. So, and I think, um, you see this similar if maybe with a lot of altcoins compare, you know, how decentralized really are many altcoins? Like look at maybe Binance Smart Chain or Ethereum or EOS. And like there are dozens of them that I'm not familiar with how all they work. I mean, I guess um, XRP is another one. So many of these things are actually, when you get down to it, federal stake or one party owns like 70% of the coins and it's proof of stake or one party, you know, controls the uh, list of, uh, I don't know what they're called in XRP, like UNLs or something. So I think you could make a reasonable case that Liquid is more decentralized than many of these things. It's just that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing department, so and and we do, and it doesn't have a coin to sell either, right? So it's like it's Bitcoin. You use this, you opt into this layer if the trade-offs make sense to you. But there's nobody with you know a big marketing budget to uh, advertise it, you know, over advertise and exaggerate its decentralization or bent or something, right? So. I think it tends to fall into the same bucket as that, and, and like various companies and individuals contributing to tools and code into it and around it, but there's nobody really, um, no, there's no native coin, there's no ICO, there's no, you know, so it's just Bitcoin layer two stuff, and that has a side effect of much less colorful marketing and more kind of focusing on the technical it's kind of more engineer than thinking or something right where there's not really much advertisement um so i mean basically uh, so what good i mean basically the argument is 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 we see um in the so-called cryptocurrency world um basically the these chains these projects that have decided to go more centralized um they're almost doomed to be superseded by someone who decides to go even more centralized. And we had Ethereum. Oh, absolutely. Ethereum yeah. went more centralized than us. So then Binance and CZ went to BSC, which is the same exact Binance Smart Chain, which is the same exact um, APIs and calls, contract calls as, as Ethereum, but it's even more centralized, so the fees are cheaper. Um, in the case of, of something like Liquid, though, it's it's a way to try and channel that move to a more centralized model while still maintaining the Bitcoin unit of account and allowing Bitcoin users to actually flex and use that. It's 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 more complementary than a competing centralized chain. It's a it's right. a it's a complementary centralized chain. It's a side chain, right? Which is is the term right. that is that has been used frequently. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, something, something else that people are often not aware of is that because because there was a I think it was a question in the chat uh, quite a while ago 
about talk about liquid versus lightning and so they think people will tend to think about it as like it's a choice or it's there's some positive competition between bitcoin and liquid and lightning like you know if lightning wins that's good because it sucks transactions off bitcoin and makes bitcoin transactions cheaper and faster and creates more value for those users but what they don't realize is that actually lightning is a kind of caching layer and while it works on top of bitcoin it it also works on top of liquid confusingly <laughs> so the c lightning implementation there's there originally three main implementation lightning i think there might be four or five now but the c lightning which is by rusty russell who's a ex linux kernel developer that works for blockstream and christian decker and lisa nugget are our three developers working on that and that implementation which is called c lightning you know it's it's it works on bitcoin but it also works on liquid and so you can establish a liquid bitcoin lightning channel um, by funding it with liquid bitcoin and of course the fees are cheap and the channel setup is fast and the channel close is fast and cheap and closing channels what escalated compared to when you opened it can be problematic like that's that's a pain point sometimes for um, it's a major maintain. pain point yeah so i think it's an interesting trade-off potentially because people are typically not putting huge amounts of money into liquid sorry so, into into lightning so maybe you could accept well, the we kind of are reduced well yeah some people are getting Was, so adam adam yeah. I, like, tell me, am I crazy here? So future, future Bitcoiner has, so, so one of the things I think liquid could be useful for is, um, we have a bunch of outputs. Um, we care about privacy. I don't want to consolidate them because I'm going to link all of them together. Um, but fees are rising, right? And I'm worried about fees increasing. Is, is there a scenario where a user does an atomic swap? from a my chain utxo i'm worried i'm worried about this utxo i want to consolidate it but i, I don't want to link it to my other utxos i do an atomic swap into liquid i open a liquid lightning channel and then in liquid lightning i do an atomic swap into bitcoin lightning um is, is that a reasonable scenario is that something that we could see in the future or am i just being crazy well, I think, yeah, you can you can do that. And some people have, I mean, it does look like some people are interested to um, sort of accumulate. I saw somebody in the side swap channel saying they were doing this. They would buy liquid Bitcoin in small amounts yes. and store them in a liquid wallet. And then, you know, that was like their daily stack or their weekly stack. And after they built it up a bit more, they take it out to the main chain and cold store it. And they felt that that, you know, cheaper partial custody and they take it to real cold custody when they got enough to make it worth paying the main chain fees. Um, so that's cool. That's for, obvious. That, that, that's going to yes. happen. That, that it makes sense to me that the stacker, and this is my audience, right? Is, is the guy who's doing, he's, he's doing his daily, his daily stack of $10, $15. He does that into liquid and then he, and he comes back on chain it. because if he tries to do that on, if he tries to do yeah. that on Lightning, self-custodial, it, it, he has to deal with inbound liquidity and stuff. It becomes a major pain point. But he could do it on Liquid easily. Right. Yeah, I mean, and Liquid is, I guess, has some 
simplicity advantages in user experience because you don't have to manage channels. You can receive money when you're offline. You can store the coins in a in a hardware wallet, things like that. So it feels a lot more familiar to Bitcoin. Um, not quite as cheap or fast as Lightning, but that's a trade-off. And of course, you get confidentiality too. But Lightning has you know onion routing and privacy in a different way. So, but then what you were saying about liquid Lightning on liquid connecting with Lightning on Bitcoin. That's like it, it should be possible to have a lightning route where hops in the lightning route are different. You know, first hop is Bitcoin, the next hop is liquid lightning, the next hop is main chain lightning. And you know, you get paid in Bitcoin or in liquid, and you, you know, it gets sort of converted along the way because there are lots of places where you can basically do one for paying only network fees for liquid Bitcoin versus Bitcoin. So it's not like, you know, if, if, if you were to do that, where one hop was tether on liquid, and you could certainly make a, you know, a liquid channel that's funded with liquid tether or something, um, which is curious. But if you do that, then the lightning node needs to be like a trading bot or something to hedge it, right? Because it doesn't really want to sell Bitcoin. So if the channel's all Bitcoin, but some of the hops are liquid Bitcoin and some of them are mentioned Bitcoin, you could have a mixed liquid and lightning network with channels that go through it. I think that could be interesting. And maybe, you know, if if people are using lightning for lower values than they use the main chain, maybe the, the trade-off of lightning on top of liquid makes sense, right? Because if they're putting $100 into it, maybe they're happy putting that into liquid. And then um, the lightning channel will be, you know, it'll feel nicer, right? It'll be cheaper to set up. It'll be cheaper to shut down. 100%. Be, yeah. I love this. I feel like we're brainstorming live. I mean, I was so, so, I mean, I, I was just on... Uh, shout out to our boy Chaz. I was on his show, uh, Ellen Junkies, Lightning Junkies. Obviously, they're a little bit biased towards Lightning over there. Um, the biggest cost to using Lightning is when you have to hit the chain, right? When you open. Yep. Uh, if you're a new user, you're trying to onboard new users, and fees are crazy, and Bitcoin's trading at $200,000 a coin. Um, then, then like they have to hit the chain to open a channel at $50 a fucking transaction or something, right. $60 a transaction. If they could do that through liquid, that's a major advantage. Yeah. Um, so somebody's asking a question, what about stable coins like USDC? Well, so there are some stable coins on liquids. There is LCAT, which is uh, Canadian dollars issued by bull Bitcoin, which is a Canadian kind of stacking auto stacking great exchange buying yeah. bitcoin site yeah they're really bitcoin guys and so they're the issuer of the lcad and it's uh it's a very fun stable coin because it's not really a stable coin it's a voucher and the only way to redeem it is to buy bitcoin with it <laughs> so you can't like get your canadian dollars back you just have to convert it into bitcoin <laughs> um but you can it's stable in the price of canadian dollars while you have it and so people actually use it a little bit to uh, kind of pay canadian dollars around um and there's uh, Tether is on Liquid, and 
Eurex, which is a Euro. Um, by the same which is side. run by side swap, right? Yeah, exactly. And there are some more, like um, those are the big ones, but there's a Japanese stablecoin. Adam, as far as I'm concerned, Sats are our stablecoin. On this yeah. show, on this show, we don't we don't like to talk about um, the trusted third party, uh, sta- so called stablecoins. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, they call them stablecoins, but they only go down. And they call Bitcoin not a stablecoin. They call Sats not a stablecoin, but it only goes up. So as far as I'm concerned, I would prefer the stablecoin that only goes up. Um, yeah. But all that said. Uh, so, so liquid, if we go into liquid, into lightning, um, this make, this makes a lot of sense to me. This, this idea of using liquid as a way to onboard onto lightning. If, if you're a a lower value, lower value user, um, am I correct in thinking that it's easier to atomic swaps once we have them on lightning, whether that's liquid lightning or on chain lightning, like regular lightning. Um, well, I mean, the, the, there's wallet work needed in either case. So it looks like side swap can do main chain swaps. And I guess they're going to get more trustless over time, liquid for Bitcoin. And the, there is uh, lightning, on Liquid, Grubles has some channels and stuff. It's not a very big network, and it needs to be integrated into more wallets. So it's using the kind of C Lightning, which is a command, like Linux command line kind of Lightning space. So, but you know, it, it should be fairly easy for somebody who can. I mean, many of the Lightning wallets are open source, right? And Lightning on Liquid is plus or minus the same as Lightning on Bitcoin. So for somebody with the right skill set, they could basically fork a main chain lightning wallet and make a liquid lightning wallet with it. And then there's another interesting thing which we were discussing there, which is, well, why not go further and make a combined lightning network that can route between the two? So that would be a cool thing, but it's a project for something to do. I think, you know, it, it should work, but there's a little bit of development work in there. Wiz, what what are you thinking over here? Well, okay, so yeah, there's a lot of topics to to kind of touch <laughs> on, right? I mean, it, okay, another thing about the, uh, I guess the, well, okay, so one of the first points made was Liquid was cre- originally created for exchanges, but then they kind of opened up um, the full node software. Uh, to everyone. So any user can now uh, use LBTC and, you know, issue assets or do any uh, really, you know, confidential transactions, which is, which is really cool. But um, especially for the, the use case of BISC um, or, or, or even like before we even get into that, like there's this, um, I don't know, there's like this meme on, on Twitter, I saw like someone said like, "Oh, Liquid is a shitcoin," and I thought that I thought that was funny. Liquid is not even a, a coin. Liquid is just a blockchain. I guess they were referring to like LBTC, but this is uh, this was said by someone who has coins on like Kraken or some centralized exchange. And if you don't understand the, um, it, it's kind of like this progression of. Um, so a lot of people say like I want I want something to be trustless, right? But there's if you think about it, there's actually really no such thing as like trustlessness. 
all you really ever do is spread the trust around to more people and uh, add more checks or sl uh, slow it down with more time locks. Um, but you can never like eliminate trust. So for example, if you walk up to a vending machine and you put a coin in the vending machine, you're trusting the machine that it's going to actually dispense the drink and not just steal your money. And likewise, when you um, you know, sit down at a restaurant and order some food, the restaurant is trusting you that you're going to uh, pay the bill at the end of the meal. And if there is a dispute, you know, they would call the police or take you to court or something. And there's some kind of um, uh, dispute resolution process in all this. And the way you um, the way you typically solve this problem in the real world, in the fiat world, is by introducing a trusted third party. So, for example, if I go to the restaurant and I have, a, you know, an American Express credit card, um, I don't trust the restaurant and the rest the restaurant doesn't trust me. But we both trust the uh, bank to uh, guarantee the transaction and to um, sell everything. And of course, the bank takes their cut. So now when you extend that into the crypto uh, space, um, even on the Bitcoin blockchain, you have uh, miners, right? Like uh, everyone knows the risk of a 51% attack. If the you're, you're always trusting that the majority of hash power will um, not just mine empty blocks and they'll actually mine your transactions and everyone's transactions in into the blocks and this uh works wait wait wait, wait 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 what wait, wait. There, there's two different things right it, there's a 51 percent attack and there's the chance of of miners not mining your blocks and not mining your transactions right but 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 it's, if you raise well, your right, fees if you we we can have we can have a censorship situation without a fifty one percent attack, and we can have a censorship position with a fifty one percent attack. But it's a different scenario, right? So the the, the risk of censorship resistance is um, kind of um, the 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 combat to that is the financial incentives, right? So by right. putting transaction fees uh, on your transaction, your you know, you're saying I'll, um, you know, you're putting like a bribe or, or a bounty on your transaction. If anybody mines this, they can get the fee. And that's why miners will prefer to mine blocks full of transactions instead of right. empty transactions. There's also the like inherent um, incentive that if the miners just mined empty blocks, they would kind of destroy the, uh, the, the value of the token and the network which is um, something they would have had to invest in by building their uh, mining hash power uh, facilities and hardware. So there, there's a lot of incentives which make the miners always want to mine full blocks as much as possible. And if you take that, if you start with that point um, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to trust literally any miner out there with hash power. I don't care who it is, but I will, um, you know, you're trusting the majority. You're trusting the collective a community of miners to be honest and do your transaction into a block. And then if you, if you kind of trade off that a little bit and you um, say, okay, maybe I don't need to trust, you know, thousands of people. Maybe I only need to trust like uh, hundreds of people or, or thousands of anonymous people. Maybe I only need to trust like a hundred reputable people or something, right? Like I, I know that, if I give my Bitcoin to, you know, Mark Carpellis, you know, he can gox me. But if I 
spread that trust around to 15, 20, 100 people, and they're all checking each other, um, it's much, much less likely that um, you do this. So there's a lot of um, gray, like not gray area, but like this is like this spectrum of sliding scale where you start with a single centralized trusted third party you move up to a multi-sig model or you you know from beyond that you move up to a federated model uh from above that you move up to like a decentralized model and then at the very top would be a fully distributed um like bitcoin mining base layer level of security and so obviously bitcoin is optimized for maximum security but it's extremely expensive to pay all of those miners to, you know, I mean, Adam knows this even better than I do. I mean, to build a mining facility is like, all right, start by buying some land, building a building, uh, high voltage power lines, high voltage transformers. I mean, you're essentially building a data center just without any redundancy. So, you know, it's, you could easily spend millions of dollars um, in your facility. And so the Bitcoin security is the most expensive but it's um, probably the most secure uh, system that humans have ever figured out how to build. And so if you don't need that level of security, if you're just doing, if you just want to stack a hundred bucks, you know, uh, maybe you don't need this uh, Bitcoin base layer amount of security. Maybe you're fine with just trusting 20 reputable uh, friends or companies or, or whatever. Right. And so this is kind of why I think liquid is cool is because especially with dynamic federations, um, you can just trade off. You can you can have that option, right? And if you you know if you're going to do a million dollar transaction, then of course you're going to use a Bitcoin base layer. But if you're going to do like a, a medium sized transaction, maybe you want to uh, use something like Liquid. If you're going to do a five dollar transaction at the at the cafe for a coffee, maybe a Lightning channel is best. And it's always about using the right tool for the job. So with when you, when you talk about liquid as a technology, I believe it's like the best um, middle balanced um, trade-off where you trade off a little bit of security for a ton of additional um, privacy and new use cases and lower fees and faster confirmation times. It makes sense for a lot of use cases, not all use cases. Like you said, a lot of people will always prefer when, – when you talk about cold storage, yeah, you should – you're not going to use liquid as your, um, you know, to store your entire life savings. It's kind of like um, a hot wallet in a in a way, or maybe a warm wallet. There's some, maybe there's no terminology for this yet. But if you keep like 95% of your money in offline multi-sig cold storage on the Bitcoin base layer, but you have like 5% of your money in a bank account in fiat currency or lightning channels or you know, liquid, uh, paying like in the US dollars. Exactly. Like that, um, makes sense, um, to have that kind of, uh, the best tool for the job. Like when you go to the supermarket and you want to buy some food, you know, you're not going to be doing a Bitcoin base layer transaction, right? Yeah. You're just the overwhelming oh. majority of people have their wealth stored in trusted options. So if in a hyper Bitcoinized world, we have trusted options on top of Bitcoin that are better than the current trusted options because at least you have proof of reserves, at least you have certain guarantees. Um, that's not the end of the world. Like this idea that like everything needs to be at the same level as Bitcoin on chain is just untenable. It's not a thing that's going to happen. 
And that's fine. These are things that give, give Bitcoin users more options, right? Right. Yeah, and it, it goes back to the block size debate. It, it was um, now, you know, you can get a Raspberry Pi and throw Umbrel on there and run Bitcoin Core and even Elements Core and a dozen or so apps all on this very, very cheap computer. And you can fully verify everything. And if, you know, this goes back to the block size debate. If you make the blocks big, for some reason, to try and make the transaction fees less, then you know you probably can't run it on a Raspberry Pi anymore, and it leads to centralization, et cetera, et cetera. So there has to be a balance for everything, not not just the the Bitcoin um, block size itself, but for middle transactions and for coffee transactions. There's um, there's the right tool for the for the job for every type of transaction, and those are so far. I think we've only uh, mostly talked about simple payment transactions. But if you want to talk about um, maybe the cooler features of Liquid, like simplicity, where you, you can actually do some uh, smart contract functionality or issuing some assets for some reason, like say I have a coffee shop and you know I'm going to issue coffee, coffee tokens. So if you have one of these um, Wiz coffee tokens, you can come to my coffee shop and redeem it for a coffee, that type of utility token. Um, it's so cool to just be able to issue that on the liquid side chain. It eliminates the need for so many, um, you know, shit coins out there that all they do is just issue tokens. And it's so nice to be able to have a liquid side chain with Bitcoin as its native token, but also the, the ability to do uh, more interesting use cases um, with, you know, different levels of privacy and uh, speed and, and lower cost. Yeah, actually, Grubles made an interesting comment. It's like not Grubles on Twitter about um, the uh, some debate about um, swapping into altcoins and and like a justification for altcoins, privacy coins. And so he he made the point that you know if you if you swap into an altcoin, you're now exposed to its its price. And there is no peg, right? So you know you have to you have to do a trade. So it's kind of like, you know, um, there's some analogy basically that there is no peg, but there's a market, right? So you have to find somewhere to trade it, and you're exposed to its price movement. And if the coin was centralized and it stopped allowing transactions or something, you'd have a kind of a different problem. Um, yeah, so I think that if Bitcoin gets too, you know, too, um, I mean, I guess, I guess the point is people sometimes mistake technology limits for intent. So by intent, because we all like Bitcoin and the censorship resistance and bearer properties and so on, that we would like everybody to enjoy those benefits and be able to afford it for their use case because people are, you know, have different amounts of income and savings in different parts of the world. Um, but then the technology has limits. So then it has, to, I mean, basically price is the, is the thing that distinguishes, right? So, but I think there might be a future where new technology arises that, that creates a different problem, you know, like, 
if there are very scalable snarks so that the um, the blockchain is, doesn't include all the transactions. It just includes, you know, a few hundred kilobytes of snark proofs or something, and that proves anything, you know, proves that every, every transaction in the block was valid, and then the coins are just proofs that their transaction was in that block. Then, um, you know, maybe, maybe you have a, a chance to make it very scalable, um, and it will be hard to get anybody to pay for fees <laughs> because, so, you know, there's no limit. So, so Adam, I'm, I'm like, I'm curious, like on that topic, like where do, where does the liquid fee market come into play? Because right now I can pay 0.1 sats per byte for a transaction, which is, yeah. by the way, makes me feel like a fucking baller that I can just pay that for a transaction. And then it just gets confirmed right away. Um, uh, the way I look at it is the whole point that we have the transaction fees is because me, humble node runner, who's running a node through fucking Tor on a Raspberry Pi needs to be protected so that I'm allowed to run it, which I completely respect on chain. But with Liquid, you have these these federation members that are running high performance hardware connected to very high bandwidth connections. So... What is the limit, right? Like, if Liquid gets successful, do do does the block size increase on Liquid very easily? Like, why why would there? What situation ends up where there's fees on Liquid that are high? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the blockchains are hard to scale, um, so you could push it a bit further because, but I think you do want power users to be able to verify, you know, to be able to absorb that, receive that much information over a reasonably fast consumer internet connection and buy, you know, a gaming PC or something that can keep up, you know, sync a chain from scratch and then keep up with it in, you know, like a week or something, right? And so that will start to pose a limit. If you if you go beyond that, I mean, you know, it's just a database at that point, right? So you just will give up. I think the verifiability is important because, so I mean, another thing that is um, not so intuitive is that uh, at least for the assets on on Liquid, the the people with the full nodes could fire the block signers, and you know elect new ones amongst themselves and resume the chain from the last good state. So let's say the, the block signers started doing something that, you know, a bunch of users didn't like or some of the businesses relying on it didn't like. They could take the chain and resume. Now, of course, they could take, you know, tethers and assets and things with them, but the Bitcoins, they'd have to peg out. And, you know, if if the block signers refuse to give them their coins out, that's that's a different problem. But generally speaking, they can resume the chain. And so it's important for them to be able to run a full node to check that the blocks are valid. You know, the, the blocks that the block signers are signing are valid and don't have double spends and so on. I, um, I think. I, I guess the question I'm asking is, so so for the pegged assets, for things like Tether or NFTs or whatever pegged asset you want to talk about, you know, EuroX or whatever, LCAD, um, those things, it really doesn't matter what chain they're on because 
the centralization risk is is happening at the issuer side. So they can move if if, if they're angry at, at the liquid federation, they can move to whatever fucking chain they want to move to. And we and we've already seen that happen. We've seen that happen with Tether. They went to Ethereum, then Ethereum fees went up, then they went to Tron. You know, now they're coming back to Liquid. Uh, they they can go wherever they want because ultimately, what you are doing, are you're trusting Tether, you're trusting right. the people that are holding the USD. Um, so, uh, I mean, I mean, with, with all that said, uh, the 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 point is is if we're talking about this this idea of 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 trust um how how does a how does a user level that like like i i don't understand exactly how a user realizes um what they're what they're going to do in terms of like do they trust on chain versus liquid does liquid the the key is 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 with liquid I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how does the federation like like why would you be a federation member if your fees aren't going to go up over time how how does what oh. like where does where does the game theory follow where the federation member wants to secure the network if if their fees are are just staying you know at at their basis yeah I mean so. Um, I mean, today the fees don't actually go to the federation members; they go to Blockstream. But then Blockstream is using them to offset some of the peg wallet uh, transaction costs. And I think you need—I mean, you need fees to avoid spam, and so the fees need to be in Bitcoin. They can't be in assets because then they could print. You know, ridiculous number of assets and flood the chain using them as fees. So I think Bitcoin is liquid. Bitcoin is the right asset to use for fees. Um, but I don't, you know, nobody's really trying to make money from the fees directly because they don't have mining costs to defray, right? So it's more like you know, despamming the people being functionaries and block signers are. You know, they're trying to run a business. They're like side swap that is charging swap fees it's like 0.1 percent swap fees some of those swaps you can do yourself cheaper but they're less convenient or exchanges so they're getting kind of more use case use out of it so they're willing to or they're philosophically interested right so they're they're running a node but the node isn't like a profit center it's more the the indirect benefit um so yeah, that's that's the fees. And oh, one thing to say about the fees as well. So zero point one sats per V byte, but uh, they're confidential transactions, so they're a bit bigger. But still, you know, it works out uh, like less than one. I think a little less than one sat a byte, but that always works, kind of thing at the moment. So I think your your general point, though, I agree with, which is it would be a reasonable thing to increase the block size a bit on liquid if if the fees you know if it filled up and the fees started to get annoying um but i think you can't you can't go kind of crazy right because the cpu costs will get out of control the bandwidth costs will get out of control and if if nobody can verify it then it's not really a blockchain anymore 
and you just but like how does the how does the federation members like why why are they federation members like what do they i i feel like they should they need to be making money off of it to be uh yeah i mean so they've all got you know right i mean they've all got some use case so i mean site like tech site swap right they are um they're making these commissions on the trades in the wallet, right? So they're swap, they're sort of accelerating swaps and facilitating, you know, Bitcoin to liquid Bitcoin to liquid tether or Bitcoin to liquid Bitcoin cross chain, and they're taking commissions on it. So that's how they make their money. And so um, I think the other part of it is, you know, they want to be able to trust the network security, and one way to do that is to be to be part of it. So to to operate, you know, one fifteenth of it or something, right. and look look around at who else is doing that. So there are people that have hypothesized that in a very far future, where Bitcoin doesn't have any subsidy left and it's all fees, that you know, one th- one hope is that while the fees will co- will provide enough money for the miners to, you know, make a profit, continue to operate, and provide security to the network. But another theory could be that people who run Bitcoin related businesses maybe want to do a bit of mining just to keep the network secure and protect their Bitcoin related investment. Um, so as a theory, I did some Bitcoin mining on, I was like, well, you know, here, here's me complaining that Bitcoin is too, Bitcoin mining is too centralized. It's Bitcoin. There's nobody to complain to. So I guess I better do some mining. So, you know, figure a percentage of that I was comfortable with doing mining and I put some, I put some money into mining and that way I felt like, I mean, of course I didn't make a dent, you know, like a tiny fraction of a percent, but I figured that it doesn't take that much. I think it's like, you know, a few percent of Bitcoin's total market cap, you know, completely decentralized Bitcoin hash rate. So I think something like that could apply kind of thinking is the more prevalent and liquid because there is no mine, right? I mean, there's, there's no reward as such. So, it's already jump-started to that situation and they're not doing it for the fees they're doing it for well because we're running we need to run a business on it and we need to be able to trust what's going on so we're going to we're going to do it um so it's kind of jump start jump dead to that i mean some, sometimes layer twos and altcoins experience things that would only happen in the far future for bitcoin so it's kind of done one of those i guess and it seems to you know people there seems to be a queue of people that want to get you know want to get functionary so as soon as dynafed is ready there are people that are you know keen to operate one um yeah so i mean i mean basically uh i mean there's incentives to be a a a liquid federation member the those incentives aren't the fee it isn't the fees like you're not becoming a federation member to make fees right and well, that's I mean, okay. you, you you could get into a kind of weird conflict too, right? If 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 there were fees and no rewards, uh, maybe some of the federation members want the blocks to be as small as possible. So the fees right. are really high. Other ones like, no, our use case needs retail payments. You're killing the use case for us. You get into some conflict. So the way it is at the moment. Nobody's really, they just, they just want it to work, work reliably, support lots of use cases. Um, and to act as, I guess, in a way, a kind of uh, a sort of reduced, you know, a sort of 
that can support bigger blocks and you know, more CPU to verify all these um, confidential transaction proofs that that would be a problem on the main chain because it would be you know censorship risk. But for a side chain, you know it's opt in, right? So um, people don't have to. You know, they can tolerate it being more centralized because that's up to the people that opt into it. Right. And when you talk about like why uh, why become a member of the Liquid Federation and what are the incentives, I think um, it, it's funny. I actually saw something on Twitter that made me laugh. Um, someone said Wiz is uh, part of like the Liquid Cartel, so he's trying to hijack Bisc and make it use liquid or something hilarious and they don't realize the reason i joined liquid was to be able to represent like the interests of the bis community you know uh by participating in the governance on the board or just being able to like verify things um you know internally or being able to um you know provide liquidity you can pay some, out at will, right? Exactly. Like those, those are the incentives, right? Is to participate in the network um, as a as a member, not not for any f direct financial incentives, right? Um, obviously, I run a lot of stuff for Bisc, and so um, I also want to be able to uh, provide this, you know, similar services or maybe bridge services between the Liquid and Bisc uh, communities. So that was the incentive for me. I don't know. It's kind of like, okay, on the internet, the internet also has governance, uh, not to like go off topic, but the internet being a peer to peer network, um, does have a governance structure. And, um, you know, I've even like tried to, uh, get elected to the executive council of the internet in Asia Pacific and, you know, other like fun stuff, but, but just being a part of the internet, you kind of want to, participate in the the policies or the governance you, you kind of want to have a say uh in how things work and not only and then the other side you want to be part of the discussion or you want to you know just just have a have a say in things um how they're running so th i would say from a membership perspective those are um the incentives then of course i think matt you would agree as well before you recommend your friends to use something you also want to be intimately familiar with how it works and 100%. verify it yourself yeah so so that was you know before i suggested to bisque that we should consider adding um you know support for the liquid chain i i wanted to like fully verify it myself and and uh, get comfortable with how it works and that was cool like even when there was um that issue that uh, adam mentioned earlier with the uh the time lock two weeks versus four weeks thing i actually asked adam i was like can you send me the the source code for this thing i kind of want to verify it and sure enough you know uh you know i was able to get all the source code and actually verify what was what was going on and i thought that was um that was really cool to be able to um to ask for that right and to be clear here like like you're you're I appreciate the fuck out of you. I mean, you're hosting BitcoinTV.com, which hosted, hosts all of our archives for Citadel Dispatch. Um, and we've had issues with people hosting that shit. Um, I mean, like you're, you, there, there's, there's no clear financial incentive for you to do what you do. You're putting yourself in a more vulnerable situation 
um, being a Liquid Federation member. I, I cannot, I work through all the different scenarios. Um, yes, I'm a little bit biased because Wiz is a friend uh, and he's been on Dispatch multiple times. But like, honestly, like there's there's no way for him to make money here. Like, they, like if anything, he's losing money being a Federation member. Um, you put it all together, that's, that's how it comes out. Um, I, I, I wanted to, Adam, while I have you and I appreciate the fuck out of you, like, it's fantastic that you've been here for this conversation. I think this has been a really very informative conversation for the audience. Um, uh, 6102, this has been famously called the 6102 Bitcoin show, um, because Mm -hmm. he refuses to dox himself. He's only doxed himself once on voice. And that was on the Stefan Levera podcast. Um, but besides that, he's never actually doxed his voice and, and he wants to know, um, and I'm very curious as well. So, so he did channel me in this question. Is it possible for us to do a multi-party transaction on liquid, um, without doxing the information, like doxing the amounts, um, and the destination of the individual transactions to the other people of the party? Basically the idea is. Is it possible to do a coin join without unblinding your confidential transactions? Uh, yeah, you just need the blinding factors to add up between the inputs and the outputs. So I think you don't really need to know anything about the types or values of the other parties, just that you get out the same amount that you put in and you have to do some kind of, you know, coordination game where partially signed messages are passed backwards and forwards. So there's, um, for people doing some kinds of Bitcoin stuff, you come across PSBT, which is a kind of file format for a partially signed Bitcoin transaction. So there's an extension to that called uh, PSET, which is by, um, uh, actually Andrew Chow is the person who works on both of those and he works at Blockstream. So he's been working on PSET, which is a way to, you know, adds, liquid extensions to this uh, kind of message format and adds blinding factors and things like that to it. So something like that should be possible. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the intuition is basically with the blinding stuff, the, the, in Bitcoin, the inputs, you know, the values of the inputs have to about add up to the value of the outputs plus the fees and in liquid, the value of the inputs of each type have to add up to the same value of the same type. And that, you know, there could be multiple types in there, right? But the inputs have to add up to the outputs. And the way that happens with the blinding factors is the blinding factors have to sort of cancel out on each side. So it's it's mathematically possible to, you know, join with something where you don't really know what it is or how much it is. That's great. I mean, that that that's what we want to see. Um. Oh, something else I was going to mention because we were talking about sort of privacy and confidentiality is that coincidentally, the uh, confidential transactions is the building block um, used in a in a few different things, including Mimblewimble. Um, so when uh, Greg Maxwell used to be the CTO of Blockstream, but now you know independent. He um, 
who was implementing it, I've mentioned to him that, you know, with this range proof, you wouldn't need a signature because the range proof itself is kind of proof of ownership. And that is, you know, like a, a first step along the way to Mimblewimble. Mimblewimble was sprung on the world by another pseudonym, actually. But as a site, Liquid basically has the building blocks in it already to do Mimblewimble-like behavior, which is instead of doing a transaction with a signature and blind effect, you just, you know, make an opt-true transaction. There's no signature. And knowing the blinding factors um, is what enables you to spend. And you, and you have to know the blinding factors to spend. And then you need to, you know, you need to do something. And you need to make a wallet that understands this kind of a different way to use the liquid blockchain formats. So that's another thing that could be done potentially in wallets. Um, and then the, you know, the only thing missing for liquid for Mimblewimble then would be that it's not you know, making use of the mathematical properties that lets you delete the history out of Mimblewimble transactions. But it's kind of curious that you get the, you know, the kind of claimed privacy benefits from them or something. It would actually be possible today even. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot of like, um, I, I think we're just seeing the very beginning of what's going to be uh, possible with this basically new global financial system. Um, there's this uh, very famous post by Hal Finney on the Bitcoin talk forums where he's talking about um, the future of Bitcoin banks and Bitcoin banking. And I think um, Adam also tweeted about this uh, in the past too when uh, HODL HODL implemented their decentralized lending platform on top of Liquid. And it's and it's kind of like um, this is this is the future of um, Bitcoin banking is, is some kind of side chain with Liquid that of course settles uh, on the base base layer Bitcoin blockchain and uses Bitcoin as its uh, token of account, as its unit of account. But the side chain itself can do all kinds of really cool stuff that the Bitcoin base layer wouldn't um, be able to do. And um, this is this is also why I'm so interested in Liquid, right? Because we're just we're just seeing the surface of um, you know, what new op codes or what new contract functionalities. And, and um, maybe this is a good time to, to talk about BISC a little bit. Like with, with um, uh, you know, we, we talked about the, the, the kind of, okay, coffee transactions or day-to-day -day transactions for daily stack or, you know, large settlement transactions that batch, batch a lot of things. That's like the obvious use case of a side chain or, or any of these things is okay bitcoin base layer fees are getting high so let's batch a bunch of transactions on liquid or lightning to get the fees down and then we'll settle on chain uh eventually at some point but the real other side of the cool stuff you can do with a side chain like liquid is the new functionality right and this is this is like where you can you can just you know imagine the future of um like hold a hold a lend is a cool example right they if you're not familiar they have this um uh on chain on in a liquid contract they'll lock up bitcoin or they'll do some kind of atomic swap i'm not too familiar with the technical details but your uh lbtc and your usdt um are in this really cool uh multi-sig swap uh, contract right so you can you can fully verify everything and i think that's the real key to um 
the future of Bitcoin banking is that, okay, back in the day, if you go back to the gold standard, you know, you would have um, a bank vault. A bank has a vault with a bunch of gold bars in it. Well, how many gold bars do they have in the vault? Nobody can really verify that easily. But more importantly, how many gold certificates did they issue out, right? Are they a fractional reserve or is it a full reserve? Is it, um, I think they're, you know, like are they fully, uh, are they, do they have 100% reserves or not? And that's the really cool feature about Liquid that's underrated is that if you imagine Liquid as some kind of bank um, that's issuing like um, not gold certificates, but like Bitcoin certificates or Bitcoin IOUs, like with what the LBTC token uh, essentially is, is that you can fully verify not only the holdings of this Liquid Federated bank, but also the liabilities. And I don't, know of any other system where this is really possible, where you can fully verify both the assets and the liabilities of uh, this type of um, sidechain. So that's really cool um, that you can do that with Bitcoin or more accurately on top of Bitcoin to enable actual banking use cases like peer-to-peer -peer lending or um, you know, BISC is another good example. BISC on top of Liquid with more privacy and, and lower fees. That's where Liquid is really going to shine. And that's uh, why I'm bullish on the future of, of uh, Liquid for this uh, functionality. Yeah, I mean, the HODL HODL stuff is interesting. I don't know if you guys ever had them on, but they could explain it more. But I tried it out a little bit and it's... We um, had them on. Yeah. They're okay, technically so a sponsor of, of the greater podcast, but not a sponsor of this show. We have no sponsors on this show. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically like a two or three trustless escrow. And it's quite a low-risk way to collect interest on US dollars because the person who borrows them has to over-collateralize it with Bitcoin. And as the lender, you get one of the keys for the for the S for the uh, collateral and so you know unlike the other lending platforms where you you basically give money to a middleman you don't know what they do with it you know if it's like lend out you know what the risk is you can actually see the the coins cold uh guaranteeing the loan and um so yeah it seems to be you know there's more people wanting to borrow than there's dollars to borrow. So any, any money that goes in there just gets used up immediately. So, you know, it's, um, it seems to be pretty active and actually the main, uh, borrowing, yeah, they have tether on, uh, a couple of net liquid is the one that gets most used on that one for some reason. Yeah. I mean, uh, they get a lot of shit. They get actually get a lot of shit about uh, supporting altcoin. Um, altcoin supported, oh, or yeah, so all chain supported, like uh, stable coins. Um, yeah, so and what, what's interesting is what's interesting is they actually have a lot of trouble with the confidential transactions. Um, yeah. It it actually ruins their setup. It makes it way more difficult for them to use. Uh, yeah. Liquid USDT versus regular USDT. Right, because um, if there's a dispute, like there's because it's two of three, if the lender or borrower gets in dispute, like you underpaid or you didn't pay as much as you said you did, they can't tell because it's confidential. It's kind of great. I love that. You have to. So we added a feature. I mean, we needed to add it anyway, but we kind of rushed it for them, which is 
in the green wallet, you there's you know you can click on it, it takes you to the explorer, but it's still confidential. And we made another a new feature for the explorer, which is you click on it and it sends the blinding key in the in the URL path as a you know comment field. So the, the web server doesn't see it, but there's JavaScript in the browser to decrypt it, and then you can see it. So you can share that with Hoddle Hoddle and then they can see what who's telling the truth, basically. <laughs> but without that feature, they were kind of uh, who do we believe here? <laughs> well, I'm fine with that. That yeah. the feature not a bug. Um, so well, that's while how we have that's how Biscast. Did. I mean, I think Bisc actually oh, yeah, requested problem, that feature right? first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm the mediator on a trade dispute, and if you want to, you the the burden of proof is on the um, buyer in this case. They need to prove to the mediator that they sent the LBTC to the certain address. And the only way to do that is exactly what you just said by revealing the lining key. That's why originally when we launched um, LBTC trading on BISC, we actually had to uh, require the users to use like an elements core full node because at the time the green wallet didn't have that feature. Yeah. Well, the green wallet actually um, won't send to a non-confidential address either. It's kind of... Um... It really wants you to use. I mean, the network would support non-confidential addresses, and Elements can, which Elements is kind of like Bixie but for Liquid. Um, but Green and Aqua are confidential only, basically. So yeah, but now that there's a a URL on the Explorer that can decrypt it in JavaScript, it's kind of nice. I mean, so Adam, like, like one of the cool parts about Liquid, right, is that like all the API calls, everything is exactly the same for Bitcoin. Like, if you already yeah. implement Bitcoin, it's super easy to implement uh, Liquid, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, Novak from Coldcard was talking about this the other day um, on on one of the. He's been on the show many times. But I guess, uh, he, he was talking. About, I guess he's talked about it in a couple of places. But anyway, basically, what you're saying that. You know, Liquid is very easy to do because all the API calls are the same. There's some small extensions to do the confidentiality. But once you've adapted for that, basically, you know, here's your tool chain, your application stack. It, it all works and it's low friction. And so he was, um, you know, the one thing you need is the, is the crypto library for confidential transactions. So Bitcoin has... The main library that it uses is libsecp, but there's all the crypto. And the same developers that work on libsecp added the confidential transactions implementation. Um, so there's a libsecp version with uh, zkps. So it has the confidential transaction range proofs and things. So he figures the main challenge is to um, you know, get that running on a cold card, and he feels like the rest will be quite simple. So that would be pretty cool if uh, quit supporting cold card as well. Yeah, that's you, fucking yeah, awesome. There's, there is already a liquid support in um, Ledger, uh, like the Ledger hardware wallet as well, like Nano S. And of course, Blockstream made the, you know, the Jade as well to have uh, confidential transaction support. And actually, it turns out that the hardware wallets have like rather small memories and slow CPUs. So Jade is significantly faster and more memory because <laughs> it can do, well, I mean, it has a QR code reader on it as well, which which takes more resources because it has a camera and screen. And 
it has, um, you know, we, we knew that we would want to do confidential transactions on the, on the processor as well. So it's got like a kind of dual core 32-bit risk yep. chip. Yeah, Jade is really cool. I, I uh, played with that a bit. I think the probably the one thing that most Bitcoiners would uh, want on their wish list if they were going to um, use Jade would be like an easier ability to self-host everything on like, um, for example, like if they have a Raspberry Pi at home, um, maybe Blockstream could make an app for the Umbrella App Store that's like the Jade, um, how do you call it, pin, uh, oh, yeah. server-side pin backend? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's kind of like pin pin server or something. So actually, I mean, we should explain what that is. Hey, most hardware wallets right. are, um, you know, kind of inside it. It's protected by a pin, but particularly, it's, I mean, none of them are that great mostly. But you know, if if you if if somebody steals it and they've got a lab, there's a chance they could get the, get your keys out of it and steal the coins. And so some of them have HSMs, oh, sorry, secure elements that are supposed to be hard to extract keys from. But it turns out most of them, there's two CPUs, there's a secure element and MCU, a kind of general purpose CPU. And what happens is when you power it up, you give the pin to the secure element and it gives the mnemonic and the keys to the application processor and then it's all running in the application processor. So the distinction is not that great between the different models, you know, whether it's a secure element or not, the application processor ends up doing the signature because secure elements don't have like DSA signing capabilities. And stuff. So in any case, you know, Jade is partly one of, one of the thought processes we wanted to be like a fully open source hardware that you could buy off the shelf hardware and run it on it. So buy like an M5 stack type of variants. There's a variance like a fire that you can get to download the firmware open source and flash it yourself and now you have like a jade functionality and um but then it's not going to have a secure element so we, we figured well what can we do about this and the thought was to use a challenge response protocol with a server so that if you get the pin wrong three times then you can't decrypt what's on it and so the, the mnemonic and keys are encrypted and they're encrypted with a key that's kind of you know split between the server and the client. So the server couldn't decrypt your stuff either, um, but you can't decrypt it without challenge response to the server. And if you fail three times, the server will say no. And then you, you can recover it. You just have to reset it and put your mnemonic in again. But it protects you against somebody attacking it, even though it doesn't have a secure element. But the question there is, so what Wiz was saying is, well, what if I run, a, run my own pin server and I don't want to rely on this you know, internet-hosted pin server and yeah, we we released a source code for it, and it's pretty small. It's like a bit of Python code that you know answers this challenge response, counts down to zero, and then locks you out and deletes the keys or what have you. Um, so it's pretty cool actually to you know to put that on a Raspberry Pi and hide it somewhere, and you connect to it over Tor. And then you know if somebody gets your hardware wallet, it's going to be pretty hard to override the pin lockout server uh, if you can't find it. <laughs> And that way you have one less dependency. So, yeah, that's possible. I think we need another, uh, we need to add, have another firmware update for Jade to, to add the configuration option, but the server part is open source already. 
to use it. Yeah, right now I think you have to actually uh, change the hard-coded uh, pin server backend URL in the right. Jade you firmware can... and then like refine. Yeah. Yeah, if you're building your own, you could do it because you've got the source and you can just change the URL. But we want to make it so that even with the stock like pre-flash Jade, that you'd be able to change it to your own server. Because yeah, it, it, it's kind of similar. Um, like a lot of friends will ask me to be like their um, key buddy, right? So they'll say like, can you just hold on to one of my keys of my multi-sig setup or, um, you know, Raspberry Pi? Can you just like host my Raspberry Pi for me on your network or something like this? <laughs> and I think that would be a, and it's a good service, right? Because I have plausible deniability. I don't know uh, what they're doing. Uh, I'm just like, you know, a hosting service. But uh, that would be a cool um, kind of um, service to to provide is that uh, kind of like a self-hosted CASA or something like this, where you, you have a multi-sig um, signing and then you could define whatever rules. And I think um, with NVK's product, like the cold card or something, that, you know, it's you could add like, right, you could add multiple uh, devices in like multiple jurisdictions to create your own, uh, you know, cool like multi-sig setup so you could have one raspberry pi in one country with this hardware device and then in a different country you know and that way um you you know you're much more seizure resistant right i mean you could at least do it with cold cards in every jurisdiction that you want to put them in right but then you have to actually travel to those countries right right but like, but it's it's only him. Like he's the only one like fucking going with this shit. But I love him for it. You know. I think it's cool. No, it's very cool. I agree. Um, yeah, this is fantastic. I so so Adam. Before we leave here, I I want to talk about uh, the Blockstream satellite. Oh yeah. Uh, I think it's a very cool thing you guys are working on. Um, I, I think we should talk to the freaks, talk to the audience about how, um, it does require trust, but it doesn't require as much trust as you would think. Um, you want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So actually it's a common question because, you know, the satellites, I mean, people don't necessarily know the details about well, the outline of how satellites work, but they're basically quite, there's not much intelligence in the satellite. So most intelligence is on the ground on a, on the uplink. I say we're running uh, several physical uplink sites that we control. And I mean, a lot of people will rent space in a satellite uplink co-location or something, but we have our own uplink and that gives us a bit more independent control, but nobody's, you know, interfering with our equipment and uh, we run a full nodes on on those and encode the data in a way that uh, gives redundancy for the satellite and upload it. And so then you get the client equipment. There are different types of equipment, most recent being the base station, which is a kind of power over Ethernet flat panel dish. So you pretty much connect it, uh, mount it, point it the satellite and connect it with an ethernet cable to your uh, router. If you have uh, you have a P power of ethernet capable router, if you don't have, you just plug in the power injector and it, it relays basically 
lots of stuff about Bitcoin, you know, real-time transactions, blocks as they're mined, and a full block history, actually. Lightning gossip, uh, data updates, and the Bitcoin client source code as well, periodically. Um, and all with a lot of redundancy and error correction so that, you know, you can get a power cut for an hour and you still recover and all that kind of stuff. Um, so then the question that arises is, well, wait a minute, now I'm trusting Blockstream for this data and they could send me, you know, bad blocks or sensor, tra sensor transactions and sen trusting one person is, is a bad idea. And so then what Matt was saying is that counterintuitively, it's actually not really trusting us very much because the Bitcoin blockchain is kind of signed by miners in a way, you know, all the, all the proof of work on it. So for, for us as the node operator to, to modify anything, we would have to do a lot of, you know, we'd have to do a lot of mining. Right. Um, and so, you know, the data that comes out of the block set, you feed it into, um, a Bitcoin node that is extended with this, um, forward error correction decoding. Actually the data that comes out of the block set is UDP. Um, and then you feed those UDP forward error correction packets into uh, Bitcoin that's been extended with fiber and optimized for satellite use. And it decodes it basically. Um, and you get a full node. So the full nodes verifying the proof of work and the transaction validity. So we can't do very much. And the other thing you can do is verify it with very low bandwidth. So if you just get something to give you a recent, you know, block hash from a recent block and you can check it's in your blockchain and you know everything is correct up to that point. And there are, and that, you know, you could get something to read you that over a phone call or there is a, um, there's a phone number that Grubles has in his profile. I think it's like 1-800-BLK-HASH or something like that. And if you call that number, it, uh, it reads you the, the most recent block hash, like a time service. So that's that's kind of idea. And a little bit analogous to being on a Bitcoin pitch, you know, if, if one of your have on average eight peers, and if one of them I was trying to feed you malicious or invalid data, you would discover it by the other ones. Oh yeah, so the number is 1833-BLK-HASH. So if you call that, it will read you stuff about the most recent block hash. Um, yeah, so if, if you're on a pit pin network and you've got you know eight neighbors and one of them is very fast in feeding you most of the data, but you realize it's it's lying to you, you'll discover that because one of your low bandwidth neighbors will feed you, you know, a more work block that conflicts with it. And then you'll you'll realize something's wrong and you know disconnect the fast node or ignore what it's saying. Um, so that's the idea. So the, the block set is kind of like that, right? It's a it's an extreme version of that, which is a very fast node sending you all the data, and then you have you know, a very slow kind of almost human speed little checks on one. And, and some people use it, you know, they're not fully offline. They just use it, you know, you, you could use it on a multiple network. So you could have other peers, but just with very low bandwidth. So then you would automatically get that kind of cross check and just save on internet traffic. And I think the main, you know, for a lot of people, the interesting, another interesting thing about the block set is, um, 
privacy because it's it's receive only. Nobody knows your IP address. There's no Bitcoin, you know, other Bitcoin node in the IP address. So you've got very strong privacy, and it uh, protects you. You know, gives you service. Those can be, you know, political or, or just accidents. Um, the day before we released the base station version, there's a Canadian lost its internet connection because a beaver ate through the uh, fiber, like a rodent ate through the fiber cable to the whole town. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff stuff happens. Right? It's lost internet. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, I, I think um, I think people underestimate how powerful it is that we have a satellite just literally broadcasting uh, Bitcoin block data nonstop, twenty four seven. Can you get Elon Musk to make like a competing, uh, not competing, but a complementary service? So like you don't have to just trust the Blockstream satellite, but you yeah. can get like multiple satellite peers. That would be cool. I mean. Um... One, there is one, I mean, people often ask, will the block set become redundant after Starlink is, you know, more widely deployed and available? Mm. And the answer actually is no, because Starlink is a routed network. It's kind of like, you know, GSM or, or 4G data in the sky. So it's, you know, there are uh, uplink and then satellite to satellite laser links. And so it's not really broadcast. It's it's point to point, and the data is only available to subscribers. So they could selectively cut you off. You have to probably identify yourself to pay to sign up for it. Whereas, and so the same data, if, if lots of people downloaded it, it would like use a lot of data because it'd be redundant, you know, like on the internet. Um, whereas a block set is just broadcast. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's there's like you know, four satellites and five transponders covering most of the globe. And so they just got massive coverage areas that are literally receiving the same data. And then there are some areas where there are two, two different satellites covering the same area. And then we send different uh, mm. forward error correction code of the same data. So if you if you receive both, you can you can buy like two dishes or two two base stations, and then you'll get the block history twice as fast, and you'll get blocks in half the latency and stuff like that because it can assemble. You know, you can receive from either one and it works, but if you receive both of them, you just get the data faster. So it's kind of a neat trick of forward air correction codes. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I don't have my own satellites to uh, also host such a service. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't either. They're, they're like very expensive. We're leasing bandwidth on, uh, on like commercial satellites that have satellite TV and other like uh, industrial like data uses. So we have probably about an HDTV channel's worth of bandwidth, and we just, you know, um, optimizing like a custom compressor for Bitcoin transactions. So it's actually kind of cool. Like Peter Wall worked on Dynavit and implemented it, and um, you can actually on the Bitcoin network. It it uh, basically losslessly compresses Bitcoin transactions with you know, just with a transaction context. So that saves a bit of space. Um, so there's, there's lots of optimizations that went into it. And yeah, so we can squeeze, you know, 
useful stuff out of uh, 1.5 uh, megabits of uh, raw raw data. But it, it will I... fully sync a node from scratch, which is kind of surprising, right? You can just plug this thing and leave it there for know, a week or so, and you'll have a synced node from scratch. What I kind of like about it is, um, I mean, I guess credit to the big the blockstream marketing strategy um, is this idea that if if a government wanted to stop the blockstream satellite, they'd have to take out TV, they'd have yeah. to take out other well, I mean, providers. If one thing it's not like gonna, just your satellite. Yeah, if there's one, one thing that's going to upset people, it's going to lose their satellite TV, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we also. Because there are some overlapping coverage zones, we try to get because because the satellites are sort of owned and operated by different international companies, and so we try to get different operators for overlapping satellites. So you know, if one hmm. if one got plugged, we could fall back on the other one or something like that. Um, the satellites is they are people say, well, what happens if the internet connection goes down at the uplink site so we actually have satellite redundancy for that because the west uplink is looking at the east downlink you know so if hmm. the if the internet connection goes down on the west uplink which is heading out towards uh, europe and africa um then what will happen is the latency will get worse but it will get the data from the you know the next satellite over like it will go up and down and up again kind of thing. So we want to eventually get another one, uh, like another uplink site in Europe or Asia so that we can make a full circle. So we've got three, you know, three ground uplinks so that if there's internet at any one, then the whole system would keep running. At the moment, it's, you know, it's only double redundancy. <clears throat> That's so cool. Is that why you named the company Blockstream? <clears throat> no, that was like coincidental, but it does seem appropriate in that context. Yeah, because the logo kind of looks like uh, satellites around the Earth or something. Yeah, that's coincidental. It's like a stream of blocks, I guess. <laughs> I mean, this has been great so far, guys. People... I appreciate. It. Yeah, hit us, yeah. Adam. Go. Uh, yeah, so another question people keep asking is when Jade. Uh, we know we're working on supply chain, so we should we should be able to get back on pre-order within a couple of weeks, hopefully. Um, and yeah, and uh, I guess I guess they're also a, a nice price point at forty dollars. So our thinking is really that you know we want to make it open source compatible so that people can run their own, like build their own, so. You can, it might be a way to avoid supply chain risks and you know they got the source code so they can add submit features or you know do other things with it and um keep the cost down so we've managed to make it arguably similar security as a secure element without having the cost of a secure element um that's pretty cool like if you combine a low-cost raspberry pi with the jade in in like a package and um there was some kind of Jade app for the Raspberry Pi um, for the, the pin yeah. uh, backend server. That would be a cool um, kind of Christmas gift or present for new Bitcoiner friends to help them get started in like a self-sovereign way. And that way they would be able to do um, 
like Bitcoin or liquid Bitcoin or lightning or uh, even like tether kind of assets on top of liquid, all with their same Raspberry Pi and Jade wallet set up, right? Right. Yeah, there's uh, a number of different. Uh, there's a company called Start Nine, which which makes um, right like Bitcoin full nodes, and they have some sort of decentralized peer hosted apps. I think it's like a chat app. Um, I think they have um, an Elements node on it, or or an option to install one or something. My understanding is that uh, their uh, full node product doesn't use an external ssd yet so um mm -hmm. they like they use a prunes uh bitcoin d node on the sd card only um so i guess that's to get the cost down or maybe just make it easier but i could see why you would want to combine that with um like the jade device to get the the overall cost down and also um uh we're working on the mempool um explorer app for the start nine labs uh res not rev raspberry pi platform so that would be really cool since they have that liquid node we could actually have the mempool explorer on both the main chain and uh liquid side chain all on that raspberry pi yeah i mean it's it's kind of cool that you can run your own block explorer too so uh one click Mempool's installation yeah yeah also good for privacy yeah, originally, like that was the original vision of the the project, and we started using the Blockstream uh, a fork of Electris for our um, production server backend. But when we wanted to get it working for home users on Raspberry Pi, um, it's just too heavy, right? It's it's meant for like high performance server. So we had to do a lot of work to kind of um, get it working with the Roman Z Electris, which. Yeah which can run on a Raspberry Pi, but if if you're trying to like explore an address with more than 100 transactions or so, it'll just uh, give up, right? Because it doesn't yeah. have um, that full well, index. I mean, that's the trade-off. There seems to be a lot of like Electrum. I mean, Electrum's being a kind of uh, a backend for indexing Bitcoin data, basically. And there are a few different Electrum personal server. They they export like Electrum protocol. So Blockstream's um, open source explorer is also an Electrum server. So actually the Aqua wallet is an Electrum client and it connects to the Blockstream as an Electrum server. But you can you can point Electra, other Electrum clients at Blockstream's uh, Block Explorer actually. Um, but right. in terms of the the footprint of the thing i think it's the uh, fastest and most scalable electrum server you can get at the moment but it's it's a bit of a beast right it indexes everything and pre everything so it chews up a lot and fit in a raspberry pi very well and it's it's kind of overkill for like a personal use it's it's designed to like you know on throw thousands of thousands of user so yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, for, for I mean that's what we use, use for the light, production. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on, on mempool space, we have several servers running it, and it's just a beast. Um, and and I, I um, it's really cool though that it has its own uh, like REST API, and a lot of um, applications and Bitcoin wallets 
all integrate like a lot of um, transaction uh, broadcast services. Um, a, a lot of uh, people use this API. I would actually estimate that the the Blockstream Electris API that um, you use on uh, Blockstreams Explorer and that we also use on the Mempool Space Explorer is probably like at least ten times as popular as the actual uh, Block Explorer uh, website itself, right? Just because of all the other integrations and um, and wallet apps, and and also because um, it's available on the Tor Hidden Service Onion, so mm -hmm. um, anybody can can query transactions or addresses in their custom application or broadcast transactions, but over Tor, so their um, privacy is protected. I think that's um, really cool, and more people need to to run these uh, Explora API servers. Yeah, I mean, actually, somebody proposed that. It wouldn't be that hard to uh, mirror blockchain.info's APIs so that people could run their own blockchain.info kind of, right? Because it, it has a few REST APIs that are just coincidentally right. a little bit different to the Explorer ones. But, you know, the Blockstream Explorer has like a send API. You can send transactions through it. Um, right. And I think at times the blockchain.info like uh, gets a bit out of date. You know, I think it gets a bit <laughs> It doesn't appear to be made well at times. So it could be good for people because there were like you know actual wallets and services that rely on its APIs. So I think it might be good for them to sort of self-host, and so it would be easier for them to self-host if the APIs were the same. So that's the kind of missing. Feature. Yeah, that was that was one of the things that I think um, contributed to Mempool's um, app getting so popular is that for the fee estimation, we um, implemented the same API as I think Earn.com, and then mm -hmm. of course, since we're using your backend, we we ha we support the same API as the Blockstream Explorer. So it's nice to be able to uh, now on the Raspberry Pi uh, App Store you know, distributions to be able to have normal home users just do like a one click installation and have that API backend up and running very quickly and very easily. And then now what we're seeing is a lot of uh, wallet apps. I think Spectre supports, um, of course, they support blockstream.info and mempool.space, but more importantly, they support the next option, which is like self-hosted mempool space backend, right? So you can just point it to your Raspberry Pi. And I think that's, um, that was kind of like the vision for the for the project, right? Is to be able to empower individuals to self-host very easily. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, th I think that self-hosting is good. I mean, sometimes people write kind of web mashup applications, and then they rely on third-party servers and APIs, and they kind of import accidentally import trust or service reliability risk. Basically, um, have not not to change the subject. I know we're getting on like the three hour mark, um, but uh, did you want to uh, talk about BISC a little bit, Matt? I don't know if we still yes. have time. Yes, just hit us real quick on, uh, and we're gonna have you back, Wiz. So don't worry about it. Don't worry <laughs> about uh, um, uh, uh, us missing must missing BISC, but I, I I think it's very important. I think BISC is the one of the most important projects in Bitcoin. Uh, we've been very clear about that here at Citadel Dispatch. 
Um, so hit us with it. You know, what, what, what is the future of BISC? What, where, where do we have to be concerned and, and where are you coming at it? Well, it's interesting. You say BISC is one of the most, uh, important projects. It, it's probably the only project that touches actual fiat money, right? Like all of the other, um, cool Bitcoin projects are, kind of like crypto to crypto or layer two or side chain or, or basically um, using almost all uh, crypt- cryptography based. And BISC is, is like the only project that dared to uh, touch actual fiat money. And so it, it's a really unique challenge to, um, to like make BISC work. Uh, I mean, for a number of reasons, like obviously the, the fiat payment, systems in every country are totally different and uh every fiat currency has its own markets um with its own with their own challenges and, and stuff but but more so than all that you're taking all of that and you're trying to implement it in a decentralized and censorship resistant way and um that's like we, we talked about liquid a lot and and other uh systems for censorship resistance but um it seems like the the on-chain fees are going to pump forever and so unfortunately since bisc was developed a very long time ago it's like over six years old now i think um bisc was developed in this time where the the thought of of an on-chain fee market was like a very distant future away and now that it that it's kind of here um you know bisc is is kind of forced to to figure out some uh, scaling, um, you know, options and, and, and understandably like the, it, it's not, it's not an easy, uh, problem to solve, right? Because BISC is really, BISC users are really enjoying the, uh, the security and the privacy and the low transaction fees. But now that the, the fees go up, they're going to have to, you know, um, like if you want to do a hundred dollar trade on BISC, you're not going to spend 20 or $30 for, on-chain fees, right? It just totally prices out a lot of these use cases. And so now the users are in a situation where um, we kind of have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, how can we, how can we make BISC version two, um, you know, to, to solve not only the fees issue, but a lot of the other issues that BISC um, has encountered over the past several years um, maybe, you know, maybe we can try to improve the user experience. Maybe we can try and, um, make it more social or more community oriented. And, and it's, it's a challenge, right? Because everything is, is a balance. And if you, um, you know, say, say you implement, um, support for liquid as a base layer, as an optional second base layer, then, you know, maybe you have to like, uh, maybe you have to bootstrap a new market because now you're not just doing like Bitcoin to USD. You would have to have like an LBTC to USD market. And so, um, you know, market makers will show up and provide liquidity, but it, it just gets more and more difficult. Right. And then you also have like the, the technical um, implementation under the hood. You have to support multiple blockchains now. And um, that increases like the computational cost. Like BISC is already, a pretty heavy app, but now if you you know add support for a different base layer, what are you going to use more CPU? So then the UX also could suffer. So it, it's very 
um, difficult to to solve this problem without um, you know really uh, sacrificing um, some some important points. And so um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a difficult problem. And I think the future of BISC, like in the version two, will probably be more like a generic contract execution system. So maybe the security will even be not part of the basic protocol. This is this is still like uh, conceptual and and being discussed and proposed. But um, say say um, uh, Matt, you and I want to trade some Bitcoin for some fiat. And uh, we kind of know each other, but we, you know, so, so you, you, there's some reputational um, clout there. Like maybe that, um, you know, that, that's, that's like good for some use cases, but bad for privacy, right? Like you want to be able to trade anonymously with other anonymous individuals, but still have security, right? So, so you want to, um, you know, maybe you don't want a reputation system, right? Or maybe you want a pseudonymous reputation system. So these are all the kinds of decisions that um, we're going to have to figure out in version two. And I think for now, the only real optimizations we can do are um, obviously adding support for layer two stuff like Liquid, which is um, similar to Bitcoin. So it's not super difficult to, to add that, but it still is um, a big challenge. And then optimizing the uh, the on-chain usage on the, on the main chain, right? So maybe... You know, maybe BISC is still going to be very popular. If you want to buy ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, you don't mind paying twenty or thirty bucks, right? But for the hundred dollar trades, maybe those guys will um, decide to go to Liquid or some some other, you know, um, uh, some other venue. So it, it's a really tricky uh, problem to solve, right? Yep. I I thought Adam was going to jump in there. I I look. I I hundred percent agree. I think Bisc is, like I said, I think is one of the most important projects that we have in the space. Um, I appreciate you going in into detail about it, um, because I feel like uh, people take it for granted. People don't realize. Uh. People don't realize what the stakeholders of each of these projects put forward to to make those projects what they are. Um, and at the end of the day, like we can talk all about censorship resistance, we can talk about distribution, but it comes down to people. Like people are running this shit, right? And and if you talk about it at scale, people are running, people are running shit, man. And and the, and they're they're vulnerable. Um, Wiz is one of those people, um, and he just fucking throws himself out there. So I, I appreciate everything he fucking does. Um, I appreciate what Bisc, what the what the stakeholders at Bisc working on. Um, and I look forward to what they have in store for us. I, I, I would say to you, Wiz, is I look forward to seeing you in Miami. Um, we're going to have a live Citadel dispatch directly from our Citadel in Miami. Um, that will be a rented Citadel, but it'll be a fantastic dispatch. Um, so I look forward to that. I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about, um, the, the BISC needs to transition basically. 
Business needs to transition from a low fee environment to a high fee sustained environment. And uh, that's going to be a messy transition, but it's a transition that has to happen. And we are going to watch that happen here at Dispatch. And we're going to try and... Um, we're going to try and explain where all the stakeholders are coming from, basically. Would you agree, Wiz? Yeah, you, you raised a good point. It's like um, I don't think anyone appreciates like the amount of uh, hard work by really smart people um, at Blockstream that went into like the Element sidechain project and how much work goes into uh, you know coordinating the Liquid Federation. Um, or, you know, how much hard work went into the BISC uh, project. Like everyone kind of um, naturally takes the, the tools for granted or the on-chain fees, like the low fee environment for granted. Everyone takes the security of Bitcoin for granted, right? It's just um, so easy to do right now, like a uh, uh, five sat, you know, on-chain transaction and have it confirmed. But um, once those fees get up, people get really... Um, yeah, it, it, and that's actually the stated mission of the the mempool project is to uh, help the Bitcoin community transition to a multi layer ecosystem, right? Where we have these layer two or even layer three um, systems that enable new use cases like like Liquid and Bisc, uh, new new banking, right? You can do peer to peer lending, or you can do um, uh, trading of of different fiat currencies even right that's um that's the real future because uh in my opinion kyc is uh the illicit activity right and um all of these layer two and layer three um banking systems basically implement similar banking services that you would get from a traditional fiat bank but without kyc right Should if you want to do it <laughs> Should we do it? Adam, Adam, check this out. There are many places to buy Bitcoin. They collect your personal information and jeopardize your privacy. KYC is the illicit activity. BISC is open source. It does not collect user data. You keep your private keys, create or take offers to trade peer-to-peer and keep your Bitcoin private and secure. I love that. <laughs> Shout out to Pedro. Couldn't the, help uh, myself. The awesome designer who made that. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the real um, that's the real future, right? Of of all of this hard work is that um, we get to we get to rebuild the banking system. Um, on our own terms, using cryptography and, and decentralized systems. And we get to decide what is the correct balance of security and privacy and censorship resistance and cost and speed and user experience. Like we get to build all of these new things. And uh, it's honestly, it's like a, sometimes it's a thankless job, right? Like when you see these trolls on Twitter saying liquid is a shit coin or bisques, it's like, Come on, guys! Like we're we're trying to build a new system for everyone here, and it has challenges like any other project, but even more challenges because you're trying to build something in a decentralized way, in a censorship-resistant way, where you know the government's going to um, 
not be happy about what you're building, right? And Adam is the, you know, the OG cypherpunk here, you know, doing, he's been doing it longer than any of us, like printing source code on t-shirts, right? And, and all kinds of crazy stuff. This, this war is not a new uh, war, right? It, it's, it's all about freedom for the people and um, freeing them not only from fiat debt slavery, but also from mass surveillance and and capital controls and 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 all of these horrible things. So uh, we're doing this for the community, um, and uh, you know maybe have a, maybe have a little bit more respect for one another. Uh, you know, developers in the space, like let's not troll each other so much. We're all on the same team here. If if one project is making a privacy uh, enhancing tool, that's great. You know, like. Let's let's collaborate and work together. Let's not uh, troll each other and and uh, fight with one another. It's just a waste of all of our time. We should be working together because we're all on the same team. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Fuck yes, Adam. Um, appreciate you coming and coming on the show. I think this show has been fantastic. I think this was a great episode of Dispatch. I think it, it perfectly fits episode 20. Um, it's been a long time, guys. It's been a long time, freaks. Uh, every Bitcoin Tuesday, I think of you guys. And we're going to continue this forever uh, because you support the show. It's 100% community funded. We don't have sponsors. We don't have ads. Um and you guys, you guys make it what it is. Um, Adam, thank you for joining us. You're a fucking legend. We appreciate everything you do. Do you have any final comments for the freaks before we end this? Very quiet. Um, is Adam? Is Adam there? Oh no, I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. So thanks for having me on. I, th I think the. You know, more privacy and fungibility in uh, Bitcoin layer one or layer two. It's going to be interesting to see. And we want to see it. <laughs> so let's uh, see how that goes. Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think what you said earlier, Matt, is um, the way I try to do all the projects is um, that I that I work on is is exactly that same model. No altcoins, no advertisements, no, um, you know, it, you can't degrade any of that things no kyc right like that's the real um important thing is to to give the community exactly what it wants and uh, that's what the show is and that's what um all the the projects that blockstream is putting out and and all of the community projects it's just for the people yeah i mean to be 100 percent clear like i'm all, like i've decided that our future is going to be dominated by free open source projects. And I mean, when I say dominated, I mean, we will fail. We will, we will be in a horrible situation if we don't have free open source projects um, there to support us. And I want to run this show as a free open source project. And as a result, there will be no ads, no sponsors. I want this to be 100% community funded. Um, I, I also want to announce that we've officially launched opensats.org, um, the proper Bitcoiner uh, free open source foundation. Um, it is called OpenSats Initiative. 
uh, but we are a foundation, but we're, we're an initiative. Um, and the idea is, is that you can contribute as a Bitcoiner, you contribute and we're going to provide it to open source projects, all free open source projects, um, not quote unquote open source projects, free open source projects. We have a very strong board. Um, we will argue and we will make sure that your sats go to the right place. And even if you donate fiat, we will we will automatically convert that over to Bitcoin and hold that as Bitcoin. All grants will be provided in sats. Um, so that's opensats.org. Uh, literally officially launched as of 45 minutes ago. Um, and we're about to go really fucking hard. This is an, this is an initiative that I've been very excited about, but I had to be very quiet about. Um, so there you go. Um, I want to do a big thanks for Adam back uh, for joining us. Big thanks for Wiz for joining us a second time. I love you both. Thank you for all the work you've done. Um, you're my people. Appreciate you both. Um, thank you for joining. This has been fantastic. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks. Cheers, guys.
I love you, freaks. That was a fucking great fucking dispatch. Um, for the record, I'm going to be bringing a bunch of hats to Bitcoin Miami, Bitcoin 2021, June 4th, 5th. Um, so if you want a hat, um, reach out to me on Keybase or Telegram. Um, I will mail them out as well. If you must, if you're not going to be, if you're not going to be there, it'll be a shame, but I will mail them out. So just reach out to me on Telegram or Keybase and I will send you a lightning invoice and we'll make it happen. Um, if you want a dispatch hat, um, besides that, quinsolo.com, Q-U-I-N-S-O-L-O.com has a little dispatch fucking flask that is up for a giveaway. And the only way you can get it is if you message in the Sphinx tribe of Citadel Dispatch, the Citadel Dispatch Sphinx tribe, the first one to message stack or die gets it. Um, so cheers to all of you. Appreciate all you guys who came in and, and listened to this. And uh, stay humble, stack sets. I'll see you guys on Thursday for Rabbit Hole Recap, and I'll see you next Tuesday for the next Bitcoin Tuesday Still Dispatch. Love you all. Peace.